There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed on substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson on tonight's show. We got Bruce and Lisa Klein, Michael Clean, the return of Richard Dolan. Also, we're going to be talking to Thomas Fusco, and we have a actual witness to one of the Black Eyed Kids. And if you don't know who the Black Eyed Kid is, you're not going to want to miss it. You don't want to run into one of these. We're going to start off the show right away with that witness right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. With us on the phone right now is a personal friend of mine. Uh, we'll call him Paramedic X. He's actually a South Suburban paramedic and has an experience that he really doesn't want his friends to know about because it's one of those ones that's just way up there on the freaky scale. Uh, he was sitting there waiting for a call like we always see the paramedics doing on the side of the road. And well, I'll let him tell you what happened. How you doing there? Hey, John. How are you? Pretty good. You want to tell your story? Yeah. Let me uh, go ahead and start. Uh, I'm basically sitting in an area right by a Park, and we're lounging in the area waiting for Nicole to pop up and I'm basically sleeping and you know kept catching a nap there and I started to have this dream of like a mirror and you know light, lights coming out of it and boom I wake up and I'm like okay freaky dream I look outside my ambulance and there's I'd say a teenage male you know what looked to me looks like a teenage male about 10 feet away from the ambulance or so so I'm like okay well I gotta go use the washroom and grab a pop you know we're, we're obviously not getting a call anytime soon so I get out walk across the street there's a you know one of the chain stores go I grab a 20 ounce bottle of pop use a washroom and uh head back and uh basically these two guys there's two guys now standing uh on my ambulance one has blue jeans on the other has black jeans on they both had some type of hoodies on I'm like you know excuse me can I help you because you know they're blocking entrance to my you know the door to get in and they flip around and I nearly basically crap my pants and I probably turned white these two like I said teenage males had black eyes so I'm like whoa I'm like uh you know can I help you guys you know and they're like no we just 
permission to come inside your ambulance. And I'm like, nah, I'm like, I know what you guys are, man. I'm like, I, I don't want anywhere near me. You know, get, get out of where I'm at right now. You're not allowed to be here. And, you know, another guy, the one I would call the younger one, the smaller one, is like, well, please, you know, we have to come inside the ambulance, you know, but we need your permission. And I'm like, nah, man, just, you know, get out of here now. I'm like, I don't want you around here. You're not allowed to be around here. And, the, you know, the one I would call the older one, the taller one, mm -hmm. is like, fine, you know, really loud, you know, we'll get out of here. Now, mind you, my partner's in the rig sleeping also, okay? Right. So I'm like, whatever. Meanwhile, little car accident right behind me, okay, on the street, which is Archer Road, which is freaky enough as it is because everyone knows in the Chicagoland area, Archer Road is one of the most haunted streets. Yeah, quite you know, notorious. Every, exactly. So I turn around. I'm like, crap, there's an accident. I grab my radio, radio dispatch. I turn around. They're gone. Well, that's a B-E-K, too, for people that know. It stands for black-eyed kids. Uh, Google it if you don't know about it. It is one of the creepiest things, I think, that's out there. And, you know, may I add that there was no place for them to go. I was basically parked by the park with a wide open field. There's nowhere to go hide. I mean, there's the trees aren't big enough for them to go hide. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, I have an accident to deal with now. I'm going to deal with that accident, you know. But that stuck with me forever. And it freaks me out because I knew what they were right away, you know, knowing about this stuff. I'm like, no, 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 you know. Well, they always seem to have to ask for permission, which is odd, too. It, you know, it reminds me of almost like a vampire thing where they, they ask to come in. But all the stories you hear of BEKs, they always ask to come in your car or in your house. They never just come in. They always ask. Yeah, and it, it seemed like, I don't know, the way they did it, it's like as if they were new, the whole thing. You know, or, or were they some type of, you know, younger version that was not experienced in what they were supposed to do? I mean, well, I don't even know what they were supposed to do, uh, but it, it just freaked me out. And it, still to this day, I mean, I can remember, you know, everything. And this was quite a few years ago. This was before, because nowadays uh, you can buy those, well, you can buy those black contacts nowadays. But I'm just yeah, saying, this, is, this was a while ago when it wasn't quite so common. Yeah, this had to be at least, let's see, at minimum five years ago. Right. You know, at that time, you couldn't go out and buy these black contacts. And if you did, they you know, they were like 500 bucks each. Yeah. It just it freaked me out. I mean, it, you know, see, this is, a, this, is, this is the problem that I, and I, I should have said this more so towards the beginning. It wasn't just the iris and the pupil that were colored. It was the whole section of the eye. So for basically anybody not in the medical field, you know, there's no white part. It was all black as if I was staring into a darkness, like, you know, as if it was covered. Right. And as a paramedic, you're sitting there thinking like, Okay, what it's, it's is not, this? Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is not possible. Why, why is this happening? So, again, still freaks me out to this day. Couldn't sleep well for a long time after that. Well, being that you're out there all the time, and say if you're in the Archer Avenue area, have you had any other strange encounters? Or is this it for you? Well, I mean, we've, I've had, uh, you know, not too far from uh, where Resurrection Mary's at. You know, if you go further, uh, I believe that would be west on Archer. In the Willowbrook area, by the, there's a ballroom over there, I know, that supposedly has been uh, rumored to be haunted. Right. Uh, we have had cars pull out at the most inopportune time, and they looked like they were cars from like the 60s or the 70s, really ratty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the headlights would blink. You know, like now cars don't do that nowadays. You know, where a headlight will blink if you're hitting a bump or something. Right. So it, it's happened to me more than once, and it's always out of that exact parking lot, and it's always at about 2:30, 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm working. So um, I wonder what what's going on with that. That's that whole area right there. There's numerous stories like that, but I mean, you kind of unique because you. You're a paramedic in that area, so you're sitting there doing absolutely nothing a lot of times waiting for call. Very true, very true. And that it just happened to be that time I was sitting in that area, which is uh, right over by Justice. So it just, it's not 
possible what I saw. It's you know you, you sit there like no, nah, I'm, I'm dreaming, but I'm not dreaming. I'm off. I haven't. There was an accident that I had actually had to call for assistance for. So right. it's not that I'm crazy and nobody else that, w- that I was dreaming. You know, somebody else was there to deal with the accident. So it's, I wasn't dreaming and jumped up and dealt with the accident. It was I had this phenomenal thing happen, and you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm dealing with the accident. Right. Did these uh, BEKs actually get mad at you? There's always stories about if you don't let them in, they tend to get angry. You never got to yeah, that the, point? The, the older one, I, the one I call the older one, did not like the fact that I would not let in the ambulance. And after, you know, it, it was much resistance. I'm like, no, you guys can't come in. I know, I know, and I said exactly that. I know what you guys are. I'm like, I don't want you anywhere near me. You know, they're like, the, the younger one, the shorter one, you know, I, I say younger and I should say shorter and taller. The taller one seemed to be, to me, older, obviously, the shorter one, younger. Right. But the, the taller one was the one that was like, it seemed in charge and more aggressive than the other one. The other one was more like, well, can we please come in the ambulance? And the older one was like very insistent, like, we, you know, we need your permission to come in the ambulance. We have to come in the ambulance. Please. But they had nothing wrong with them physically, you know, where I'm like, yeah, you can just come in the ambulance. Yeah, you just let anybody in the ambulance, you know, if they ask you, oh, sir, can we sit in your ambulance, please? <laughs> sure, why not? Just, you know, pull up a chair, you know, yeah, jump on the bench seat. No, it's not going to happen. Yeah, the, he was very aggressive, the, the one. He had the he had blue jeans and the uh, and like as a grayish hoodie, uh-huh. no markings on it or anything, but very very like dressed like normal, you know. And right. that, was, that was the thing, you know, no no markings of any type on on the, on the clothes, you know, nothing like any identifier. So I was like, this is weird. And your partner in the ambulance actually was asleep at this time, so didn't get a chance she, she to see it. He was asleep when the accident happened, and I turned around, look at the accident. I you know I grab my radio, I'm like, hey, we got an accident over here. And you know, next thing I'm dealing with is I turn around, these guys are gone. I'm like, boom, I hit hit the window. I'm like, hey. Dude, I'm like, uh, you know, we got an accident. I'm like, did you see where those two guys went? He's like, what are you talking about? You know, obviously he's sleeping, and I didn't know if he maybe got up. You know, when I right. was talking to these two guys and just happened to glance over and go back to sleep, he's like, nah, man, I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, we went and dealt with the accident. Yeah, you didn't even so have time it, to actually freak out about it. You had to be like on alert. You're like, there's an accident. I gotta get, I gotta do my job. Yeah, I gotta go. I'm like, did that really happen? I'm like, you know, did this really happen? And it did. You know, it's just, it, it amazes me that people continue to deny that this stuff happens. I denied it for many years and stuff like this would happen and uh, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that changed my mind totally about everything about there being a normal and a paranormal and a whatever else you want to call it right a other side if you want to call it that yeah the BEKs fascinate me that's actually something that even when you said this I was getting chills they just for some reason just creep me out more than anything I've ever dealt with and I, I'm not exactly sure why it freaks me out that something like this has even happened you know what are they I don't know you know I, I, I've read about them you know in the past it gets to be around Halloween when I was a teenager. You know, you read about this. Oh, you know, ghost, oh, Resurrection Mary. Oh, okay, yeah, I read about them before. You know, I'm not expecting to, you know, be working one day. And then you guys turn around are standing looking at my ambulance. And a dead right. stare, what I would consider a dead stare from I'm walking towards them. And, you know, they're in a dead stare looking at the ambulance. Like, can I help you? And I, they turn around and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically freaking out there, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, can you, guys can't, you guys can't be here. I know what you are. I mean, it, it, it's weird because their eyes were actually black. It wasn't as if they were, you could see into the head or you can, right. you know, it was a, wasn't a patch covering the inside of the 
eye. It was, you have your glassy eye, and there it is, black, you know? I mean, that is creepy. And, I mean, you're made to handle all kinds of situations because paramedics run into everything. So, I mean, your nerves are probably a little bit stronger than a lot of people. So, you you, you dealt with it. Some people might have just freaked. True. And, and that, unfortunately, what ended up freaking me out later was that accident ended up being a fatal accident. I wonder if that's a coincidence or if there was yeah, something that, more that, involved. Exactly. And it ended up being a fatal accident on our travel, which kind of was like, I was like, after I found that out, you know, because we handed a call off to the local um, municipality fire department to handle it. But, you know, you find out in the paper several days later, you know, such, you know, such and such was an accident. There was an accident at such and such. And now so, so many people have died. Well, that's kind of freaky. That kind of just like goes to show you what other forces are at play in this world right or is it just well it just happened it's a freak coincidence that's true well that was an amazing story i've been trying to get you uh, on air for a while as you can attest to but you can actually if anything happens because you have the opportunity to see these things when you're just sitting out there doing nothing a lot at night so if anything ever happens to you again like i say we'll call you paramedic x because we don't want to use your name what you got to do is get a hold of me and you know we got to talk about this stuff i promise you john i will okay take care now <laughs> all take right care, we'll john. be right back you're listening to threshold radio TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Dollar Realms. With us right now is Thomas Fusco, author of Behind the Cosmic Veil. How are you doing today, Thomas? Great, John. You want to tell us a little bit about your book and yourself? Yes, I'm an independent researcher. I became interested in the paranormal as a teenager. I think that most people that become involved in these kinds of fields like ufology and uh, parapsychology uh, do so uh, because of personal experiences they had. As I did, So too. I had a couple experiences in my teenage years that would fall under the category of psychic phenomena. And so for me, it made me wonder what kind of a universe could allow these types of things to happen. And of course, the standard model, the standard scientific model of the universe didn't accommodate or allow for these types of things. And of course, it was understood that the scientific model hadn't been perfected. And there were certain mysteries in physics as well that existed then as they do today. So I began a personal journey, if you might call it that, to come up with a cosmological model of the universe that not only explained the mechanics behind paranormal phenomena, but also would provide answers for numerous other enigmas of physics and science and, and psychology as well. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, you started what your book said in your sophomore years when you had your first experience then? Yes, that account did happen in my sophomore year. I had just met a girl. Well, it was a freshman, and I'd known her for about a week, and she had invited me over for lunch. Her parents lived right near the school, so we walked over there. And as she was making sandwiches in the kitchen, I was looking around her parents' living room, and they had some different art 
hanging on the wall. I noticed a particular painting, and as I was looking at it, I got an intensely sharp pain in my left forearm. And so when the girl came back in with the lunch, I asked her a question that seemed to just come naturally to my mind. Although if you stopped and thought about it, it's like, well, this is a real strange question to ask. But I asked her, I said, did the person who painted this ever injure their arm? And she just about turned white. And so she had told me that her brother, her older brother, had actually painted this picture. You know, who would have any idea that somebody would know the person who painted art that was hanging in their house? But she said that during the time that he was working on it, uh, he was working out in the backyard with a chainsaw. And he actually had a severe injury from it to his left forearm in the very place that I was feeling the pain. Well, chainsaw injuries aren't exactly uh, minor either. No, yeah. Fortunately, he still had his arm, so it must have not been, you know, catastrophic, (laughs) so to speak. But, of course, I didn't even know she had a brother. So being a very pragmatic and scientifically minded individual, it made me wonder how in the world could such a thing be? And the different hits, you might say, so to speak, were so far beyond any kind of statistical probability that there was no way that I could come to some sort of a conclusion that it was just happened to, you know, a, a random occurrence or just a, a lucky guess or something like that. Yeah, realistically, you could have never guessed that. I mean, that's like a one in a bazillion chance. Yeah, I mean, when you actually break apart every detail of that and take the statistical probability of each individual element, of that. Uh, I think it's off the scale. So that's what started me wondering about these things, and I became very interested in it in my 20s. And then I began to actually try to research it and find again, what kind of a model of the universe would accommodate this type of thing? And so that kind of went led up to my book, and I finally published in August, and so here we are. For the person who's really interested in this, really wants to find answers, this is something that, you know, is very, it's a very significant work. It's something very different, and of course, we're going to get into some of that. So what what I eventually came up with in looking at the body of paranormal evidence as well as uh, parapsychology and scientific mysteries that we still have, I came up with a system which accommodates and describes these things. And so that's what the book is about. Now, John, do you have an audience that, you know, do you get involved with the paranormal a lot in your programming? Yeah, actually, I'm the paranormal side of the show. We have a UFO side and a paranormal side. We got quite a following on the paranormal side. Okay, good. All right, well, I'd like to talk about that body of evidence, if I might. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All right, because it, to me, paranormal phenomena represents an extremely important component of understanding how the universe is put together. And, of course, our standard scientific models don't quite accommodate it very well. So one of the first things I had to do is really take a look at that field and try to figure out what was going on with it, so to speak. And one of the things that I came to right away was that I uh, found that paranormal, that word, seemed to be a catch-all for anything that was strange and bizarre. Anything that was outside of the normal, as they would say, gets put in this particular basket. Right. Uh, And I found that to be a very weak foundation from which to start. So when you start and look at it and really try to decide, well, what is a good definition, a scientifically sensible definition for the paranormal? What I came to understand 
was that what we have is a physical effect with no physical cause that's directly linked to it. And one writer put it, and I wish I could remember his name, I'd like to give him the credit. It's like getting a, a black eye in Miami from a punch that's thrown in Cleveland. So here we are seeing these physical effects that interact with their environment, and yet there's no physical cause. Now when we look at it that way, we can understand then, giving it that definition, that something like Bigfoot, which is normally placed in the paranormal, right. to my understanding, that's not paranormal. There is a physical cause, a physical source for that effect of observing that creature. Every year, science uh, discovers so many hundreds or several thousands of different species, and just because they're newly discovered doesn't mean that any of them are paranormal. Right. We actually have two Sasquatch researchers that talk on the show before. Ah, there you go. Well, for me, that's an extremely valid area of study. For me, it falls under cryptozoology. Exactly, me too. Even though there is a connection between uh, Sasquatches and UFOs. Are you familiar with that? I've heard about that. You know, I think I've read it once or twice. I haven't studied very deeply into the Sasquatch uh, subject. Okay. Didn't want to throw uh, you off there. I was just mentioning that because actually I know that from the Sasquatch people we talked to. There seems to be a, a correlation between UFO sightings and Bigfoot activity, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. But what's funny is that in my way of looking at it, I see a relationship with them in terms of the paranormal, but from a completely different perspective. And for me, UFO phenomena, whatever they are, I feel that they have an actual physical cause. They have a physical source, whether it's something that intelligently controlled craft, either from here or from somewhere else. Uh, some of them may be some type of a as yet undiscovered natural phenomena, whatever they are, there's a physical source to the effect that we see. And of course, if you, you know, according to some experts in the field, somebody's already drug bodies of those in too, like in Area 51. Right. But when we look at the paranormal, for me, let's say like a haunted house or something, I don't think anybody's going to be able to drag a shadow ghost into a laboratory. Yeah, that would be interesting, definitely, but there's no substance to that. Exactly. And so for me, that's the starting point of beginning to deconstruct or decode what's going on with the paranormal. To give it a solid definition, and that scientific definition would be called non-local causality or non-locality for short, which means that we have a physical effect that interacts with its physical environment, but there's no physical cause in direct connection with the effect. Now, when we do that, when we understand that, there's a couple things that that does for us. The first thing is, it gives us a solid foundation from which to reason. Anytime we have to figure something out, we're going to do much better when we have a baseline of established principles from which to build. The other thing that it does for us is it gives us a little bit of a different perspective on other fields. For example, quantum physics. This is uh, very common today for people to apply quantum physics to try to explain the paranormal. But I've taken a different approach based on my definition. It's not the paranormal that needs to be defined by quantum physics, but that certain aspects of quantum physics itself are paranormal. And so here we go. We, uh, we are crossing the lines already, and with that definition, we can make certain connections. The quintessential demonstration of non-local in quantum physics is what they call quantum entanglement or entangled photon. And uh, what they'll do is they'll split a photon in half. After numerous efforts, they get it once in a while. Each one of those photons
photons is a smaller version of the original. They're complete photons, but they act at lower energy levels. And when they split them like this, they'll produce an opposite polarity. Photon A will have an upspin. Quantum polarity is not like a magnet. They speak about it in particle spin. So particle A will have an upspin, and particle B, let's say, the other member of the pair, has a downspin. And so that's a correlated pair. They call that a correlation, and it's a balance within the pair. Now, when those particles are split in two, divided so that they fly away from each other in opposite direction, they're flying at the speed of light because they're photons. They can travel any kind of a distance where they will still maintain the relationship with one another so that even if they're light years apart, particle A will maintain an upspin and particle B will maintain a downspin. Now, here's the thing. When they are able to pass particle A through a filter, that changes its polarity to a downspin, particle B instantaneously responds and reverses its orbit, its spin, to an upspin to reestablish the balance in the correlated pair. That's interesting. Yes, this is what's called quantum entanglement, and the phenomena that I'm talking about has been called photon teleport. You may have heard that term. I believe it was intentionally sensational when they came up with it, because ultimately no material is being teleported as you know, a.k.a. Star Trek. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say, actually. It reminds me kind of a teleportation, something like that. Yes, and I've actually read commentary uh, from very intelligent and very educated people who were deceived in thinking that material had actually been transported from one location to another. That's not what happened. What happens in these instances is that the information about the state of particle A is somehow transmitted instantaneously, far beyond the speed of light, to particle B, because remember, these are photons. They're traveling away from each other at light speed. So if they're, you know, 50 or 100 light years away from one another, you would not just be talking about something slightly larger or faster than the speed of light. You would be talking about a hundredfold increase in the speed of light. So this indicates to us a couple things. Number one, that there is information about the state of particle A that exists outside of space and time because the experiment demonstrates that it would be impossible for that information to be stored or transmitted through space and time, which would require it to be traveling at multiples of the speed of light, which is a physical impossibility. So wherever this information is, it is stored outside of the physical. And furthermore, it exists independently of the physical. So this is something which is very much like paranormal phenomena, that we see material or, or information materialize, either in apparitions or disembodied voices or strange noises, that type of thing, right. with no physical cause, no physical explanation for that effect. So uh, quantum entanglement certainly demonstrates the paranormal effect, in my opinion. That's actually kind of like... Uh kind of a little bit off there, but like identical twins, you know, where they can be across the world or across the street, and they tend to know what each other are thinking, or if one's hurt, the other one knows. Kind of the same kind of effect, actually, where there's no reason they should know that, but yet somehow they do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, and you're absolutely right, because what we're talking about here, once again, is a physical effect. Remember, if that thought is being transmitted, let's use the term telepathically, uh, halfway around the world from one twin to another, well, that thought is information. Right. And that information is clearly being transmitted in a way which is outside of space-time and is non-physical because when you stop and think about it, uh, according to the physical definition of
of thought. It's electrochemical in the brain. Right. Well, there's a lot of facts. I mean, there's actually scientific documentations of uh, twins doing things like that, too. So there's it's documented, but they don't know how or why it happens. Well, yes. And, and the problem is, is that they don't, they do not have a material or a physical explanation for it. Right. Uh, and again, when we start getting very exact in our definitions, we're beginning, we're able to see some of these kinds of things. So that's one part of the foundation. The next area uh, with paranormal phenomena that we need to take a look at is the way that the data that is collected is viewed. And I think that there's an aspect to the paranormal which confuses people when they look at the data that they've acquired. And that part of it is what I call a spirit-centric way of looking at things. It's a, it's a spirit-centric mindset. So if they hear, uh, if we hear a disembodied voice, the spirits are speaking. If we see an apparition, the spirit manifested itself physically. Right. Uh, if we see poltergeist activity, something flying across the room, the spirit picked up the pot or pan or whatever it was and threw it. Exactly. When we see electrical devices begin to malfunction in the presence of paranormal activity, we say, well, the spirit's drawing energy from the electrical devices in order to physically manifest. Right. Now, this clouds our thinking, and I'll explain what I mean. In a police force, when they have a crime scene, let's say someone got murdered with a gun, they send out a couple teams, and they're all specialists. One of the teams is the criminologist, and the criminology unit wants to figure out about the perpetrator. They want to know who done it, why they did it, why they chose that spot, why they chose that victim, why they chose that time, on and on. Then there's the forensics. The forensics examiner doesn't really care who done it. The forensics examiner wants to know the physics of the crime scene itself. That person wants to know how the individual died, what killed the individual. Was it a gun or a knife? If it was a gun, what was the caliber? Uh, what was the trajectory of the bullet? Where was the pistol actually fired from? Blood splatters, all other types of physical evidence, so on and so forth. Uh, but in the paranormal, we don't make those separations in our thinking. But if we did, we would be able to see certain things that we couldn't see before. And one of the examples that I talk about in the book has to do with this effect of electrical equipment that seems to malfunction in the vicinity of paranormal phenomena, paranormal activity. When we get the spirit-centric thinking out of our head and just act like the forensics examiner, all we want to do is see what the, what the physics of the phenomena is. The first thing we get to see is that the physics for that kind of a explanation just really isn't there. The idea is roughly or loosely based upon Einstein's equation E equals MC squared, that matter and energy are two forms of the same thing and can be converted from one form to another. But that's a loose interpretation because in doing so, the actual specifics of that formula are ignored. And what that is, is that it takes an incredible amount of energy to make even the tiniest speck of matter. The entire energy output of the sun is not sufficient to make one McDonald's hamburger. Uh, and that's a, that's a scientific fact based on these same equations. We see these kinds of loose reasonings used in the paranormal. Even some very intelligent people, when they start talking about quantum physics to describe the paranormal, they begin to get loose in their reasoning. When they hear, when you hear these allusions to the multiverse, 
as a possible explanation for paranormal events. When you really dig down into the details of the multiverse theory, not just the garbage that they spew out for the general public, but down into its root, you find out that it's almost incomprehensible that they could found any kind of conclusion on it. It is 100% pure speculation based on a principle of quantum physics that Einstein himself disputed and said, that isn't the way it is. He said, quantum physics is impressive, but God doesn't roll dice. And so another example I give with this same phenomenon is in ufology. Now, it's kind of funny that in the proximity of certain UFO sightings, that people report the exact same kind of phenomena. They report suddenly their car goes dead, the batteries are dead, the radio doesn't work, flashlights don't work, they just go black. Yet I've never heard anyone postulate that the UFO was draining your ever-ready flashlight batteries in order to manifest physically. Now, why don't they make that fundamental error in reasoning? Because they're not looking at the UFO as a ghost, but in the paranormal, since they got the ghost locked into their head, they make that, in my opinion, that mistake. When they say that, oh, the, the spirit is uh, draining energy to produce this cold spot that they're detecting, we wouldn't be talking about an area of two feet across that's dropped 10 or 20 degrees. Mm-hmm. We would be talking about how many square miles have just dropped to negative 273 degrees centigrade, absolute zero. Just to create the tiniest wisp, cigarette smoky kind of uh, manifestation of matter. The physics just isn't there. And by saying this, John, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm being disrespectful or that I dismiss the validity of the paranormal observations. Uh, you and I have talked uh, a little bit last week. Right. And you know that I'm a very strong adherent to the uh, validity of paranormal observations, and I think they're fundamental. And in fact, they are the missing ingredient that science needs to figure out exactly how the universe really works. But I can't emphasize enough the idea that when you're looking at, let's say, a poltergeist activity, where you have pots and pans that are rattling and flying off the shelf, the consideration as to whether that's old dead man Aunt Mary who's trying to let the uh, get the living's attention, right. or, if, you know, uh, which it could very well be. Well, Remember, just, I'm we, the forensics guy. We have an effect. We know they're flying off of there, but we don't know the cause. We're guessing it could be anything. I mean, it, we just know it's an unseen force, but we assume it's the poltergeist. We assume it's the ghost. We don't know what's doing it when it comes right down to it. No one has any idea why it's doing it. Uh, yes, uh, and, you know, uh, whether it's dead Aunt Mary or it's a demon trying to torment uh, the inhabitants of the house or if, as it's been observed, uh, oftentimes that there could be a, uh, a young girl entering uh, puberty in the house, an adolescent, and that activity is, is sometimes very strongly associated with the presence of that particular female. That's a question for the criminologist. You know, the spirit sensitive comes in. Uh, I don't like the term psychic medium. It has an awful lot of baggage with it. No, I agree on that one. And I think sometimes it's actually inaccurate. There's sensitives that go into these sites and are acting as a spiritual sensitive, and they're calling themselves a medium, which is something very different, in my opinion. But the forensics examiner doesn't care about who's doing it. He wants to know why the pot's flying across the room. Correct. uh, All by itself. And so when we start to look at paranormal evidence in that way, we begin to 
see what's going on a little bit clearer. I agree. I, it's like EVPs, too. I've caught some amazing EVPs, but I don't know their ghosts. I don't know where they're coming from. They could be interdimensional. I have no idea. I just know I'm picking up voices from somewhere that isn't where I'm standing, but it doesn't make it a ghost. Yes, uh, and for me, the way I look at it, because what I'm trying to do, John, my contribution to the community with my work is not so much to render an opinion well, I think it's this for this and that. What I'm trying to do is to give a solid foundation, a reasonable, scientifically consistent foundation from whence we can proceed from there to try to figure out what's going on. All right. So, for example, with the EVP, I begin by my basic premise that we're hearing a voice that's a physical effect. It's a physical voice. It's real. And it has a physical interaction with its environment. Otherwise, we would never hear it with our physical ears or catch it on a physical recorder. It has to be physical. But yet the cause of it is not a physical cause that's locally connected to the effect. Whereas you and I are talking, we can hear each other speak. Correct. Our voices are local to our vocal cords, which are the physical call. In the disembodied voice, there are no vocal cords. Mm -hmm. So when, when, we, when we lock ourselves into that as a foundational understanding, we, begin, we can begin to reasonably proceed from there without just jumping into gross speculation. I actually agree quite a bit. I can say I... The EVPs, all this stuff, you'll you'll get an example. You'll hear it or you'll you'll see something, but it doesn't mean it's a ghost, doesn't mean it's a spirit. We don't know what it is. Well, one thing that we can know for sure, and again, this is one of the, the things that, uh, that I came to a conclusion that helped me lay the foundation for this, what I call the theory of supergeometry, is that what we are picking up, whatever it is, is a coherent and meaningful assemblage of information that everything in the physical universe we understand this today is comprised of information just like the state of photon a that has an upspin the quality of that the system that is expressed in that observation is a collection of information so that information is coherent and it's meaningful because we pick it up not as background noise, not as static, but as a specific assemblage of meaningful information-constructed wording. And the information of its very substance, either conveyed by electromagnetic fields or conveyed by the waves that are generated in the air, those things are also physical. So when we start looking at it about, uh, in terms of information, then we could begin to reason with it much more clearer. What's your opinion on, like, uh, photos? I've got, like, a photo of, a, of an image where you can see a woman quite clearly. You don't even have to use your imagination. It's quite clear. What's your view on something like that? Well, my view of it is this. Once again, what we are looking at is a collection of coherent information. Let's speculate, for example. Let's ask the uh, criminologist... Well, who could be responsible for this? The criminologist could tell us, well, uh, we did some research, and we found that a woman matching this description uh, lived at a certain period of time in this house. Right. 
and she would have wore clothing of that particular period that we're observing. Well, that woman who lived at that time and the clothing that she wore and even the places where she traversed around the building that you're standing in right now all comprises of information. So what we're seeing is a body of information that's coherent and meaningful that is materializing before us from a place outside of space-time. And it's that very same information that comprised the body of the living woman when she was there. Yeah, sometimes I've wondered if it's an interdimensional thing, too, if there's other people, you know, in a different dimension we can't see, and every now and then the veil becomes thin, or however you want to put it, where they kind of interact with us. This one we got, actually, she was wearing uh, period clothing, you know, like 1890s or so clothing, too. Yes, and uh, this is one of the uh, flaws with the multiverse concept, where people might say if you take that type of a concept as it's uh, specifically applied to the paranormal, they would say, well, in a certain parallel universe, that person is still alive, and they're still doing that thing that they were doing in this universe 100 years ago. Right. So that's an explanation. But there's two very fundamentally wrong things about that. The first one is, and it's funny that without them realizing it, because they really don't understand the physics behind the theory of the multiverse, all they're doing is trying to find a material explanation for something. They think it's spiritual, but what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we see a material effect with no material cause, and we're going to be like atheistic physicists and say that there must be a material explanation for it. So we're just going to take another universe that we dreamt up, and we're going to borrow material from there <laughs> and shove it in our own without explaining, A, how that material could be, or that information, that material could bleed into our universe, and B, what are the people in the other universe thinking when they see that person disappear while they're appearing in our dimension, in right. our universe? You see that one picture I'm talking about, the expression on her face, too, was that of uh, complete shock, like, you know, oh, oh, they've seen me. I mean, it's, it's on her face. It's just the most amazing things. It, it, that was one of the weirdest things about that, the look on her face. It's just like, oh, my gosh, they see me. Well, yes, and people talk about that as an intelligent haunting or an intelligent manifestation. And my foundation for that is this. Again, I'm going to let the criminologists figure out what intelligence it might be. But from a forensics examiner's point of view, I'm going to tell the criminologist, look, we human beings are intelligent. We understand what intelligence means. Now, we are a creature that is part of a greater system called the universe. And that universe is constructed according to certain physical laws and principles. It's put together in a specific way, even though we don't fully understand what that way is. Consequently, as in every system, every component in that system must be constructed according to and behave in conformity with the set of laws and principles that have constructed and governed the greater system. Therefore, if a human being who is intelligent can be the offspring, so to speak, of the physical universe, then the physical universe itself is intelligent. Right. Well, what's your view on, like, a physical contact? I've been at haunted locations before where I've actually been pushed 
It's only happened twice, but physical contact, nothing there, and actually a physical force against me that actually moved me. The punch was thrown from a non-physical source. But the effect of that punch manifested itself physically. Exactly. So, yes, you got pushed. Those and that was a real physical effect, but it's non-local. Uh, in other words, the cause for it is not local to the effect. Yeah, and those, that's quantum physics. Those are the ones that puzzle you. I've had that happen like twice. And those are the mm-hmm. ones you got to kind of sit back and scratch your head a moment. You're like, okay, this, <laughs> this isn't just your imagination. This was a physical contact. Yes, absolutely. And when paranormal themed radio hosts uh, interview me, one of the few that I were able to share it with, uh, they were surprised that I talk about these phenomena in this way, and yet I myself have never uh, experienced any of these kinds of things. I've never seen an apparition, never heard a disembodied voice, never recorded an EVP, never been in a haunted house, uh, and yet because of my understanding of the way that the universe is put together, these these things not only can take place, but actually must take place. They will on occasion occur. And there's nothing to say that information cannot be intelligent because the information of the universe produced intelligence. Right. You don't have to physically experience this yourself to understand it or write about it or know about it. No. Uh, back in the uh, 1800s, the uh, great scientific minds of Europe, you know, dismissed the reports of the peasantry of meteorite. And they said they told the poor, ignorant people that rocks cannot fall from the sky for the simple fact that there are no rocks in the sky. So just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean that it's not valid. And when it comes to paranormal phenomena, what I talk to scoffers about is this. All you have to do in the entire history of humanity, and we're talking a long time. If you look in the Bible, there's a couple mentions of ghosts in there. So it's pretty clear from the description that they were seeing them back then and they knew what they were. You have to do out of all of those events is to have one valid observation just one. Only one rock in the entire history of the universe has to fall out of the sky to validate that there is such a thing as a meteor. Actually, um, even if you don't believe in the paranormal, I always tell people, if you don't believe in it whatsoever, paranormal still believes in you. It makes no difference. If something will happen, it will happen. It doesn't care if you don't believe. Yeah, you know, what puzzles me is yet they'll, because of the uh, status of the pundits of physics, the physicists who are that field's disciples, and that field's holy men, and that field's prophet. They will sit at their feet and listen while those particular prophets speak of types of phenomena and behavior in the quantum universe that are so bizarre, they make a haunted house look like a Bazooka Joe comic. <laughs> I don't even know if anybody would know what Bazooka Joe comics are anymore. I don't, do they still have that? Well, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I know what you mean, so that's showing our age. <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, uh, John, let's take my premise, my foundation, and one of the three points, one of the three major elements of my model of supergeometry is this idea of information that exists outside of space and time. Now, you spoke about this uh, photo that you took of an apparition of a woman, uh, like a 19th century Victorian lady, Correct. which we see a lot of in, this, in, in the States here. I understand over in the British Isles, they see a lot of devil dogs. They see black dogs a lot. We see Victorian ladies a lot. But think about this for a second. It, where, when this woman was alive, let's say 100 years ago, that information about her state existed. And it existed outside of space-time for it to come to us. So if we're going to take 
a relative perspective, as Einstein would tell us to do. From our point of view, when we're looking at this woman, from our perspective, we're receiving information from the past. But if we look at it from the woman's view, when she was walking around 100 years ago, the information about her being is being transmitted into the future. Do you think it's just like kind of like a record player, just some sort of imprint on time? No, because uh, fundamentally, when I've studied it and really looked at it, it seems I believe that that particular idea about events being recorded on the fabric of time uh-huh. is a materialistic explanation that is almost like a desperate grasp at a straw. Okay. At any kind of a thing that would sort of kind of explain this. When you really look at it, that collection of information would have to have some way to be preserved and sustained in its coherent pattern in the physical plane without a physically shaped body according to its in, its matrix and can record on its particular fabric, so to speak, that particular collection of uh, almost an infinite amount of information that would comprise a human body. So I think it's more practical and more consistent with what we see in quantum physics to say that that information is indeed recorded, but it is recorded outside of space and time. Well, it makes me think of that is I've heard this same story numerous times of, you know, like a an older couple where the, the man goes to work every day, comes home at exactly five o'clock, sits on his chair, takes off his shoes, smokes his pipe, identical every day. Well, after he dies, it seems to keep occurring. The pipe smoke appears, you know, you can smell it. The chair, in some cases, even get an indentation in them. You know, things like that. That's like an imprint in time is what it reminds me of because it just keeps occurring. Yes. And uh, what I say is that that is information which is coming from outside of space-time, but is materializing in our current place in in space and time. When we're talking about time travel and those types of things, we're talking about collapsing these dimensions into a singularity, and that's pretty much what they exist like for the most part outside of space-time. But to get to what you were talking about, about having a physical effect, I wanted to talk about the the second point of my system, which is the curvatures of space. And this is very, very important. This is something different than you will have heard anywhere else when it comes to paranormal, the non-local quality in the quantum physical world, uh, where we see a physical effect with no directly linked physical cause. But we do have a very common one that's in the macro universe that we see and experience all the time and never stop and think about it in this way. And what that is, is gravity. And we've been taught in school that gravity is a force. We've been taught about how it works and all that. But what they've been talking about and what we've been taught is the gravitational effect. Physics and science is extremely familiar with the gravitational effect and they know exactly what it is and they can calculate it to so many decimal points out. But the funny thing about it, they don't know what the cause of it is. This is one of the little trade secrets that doesn't really get released to the general public. No one knows what the substance of gravity is. Now, we uh, we think about the moon revolving around the Earth, and this is one of the models that we were taught. The gravitation of the Earth, you know, holds the moon in its orbit. But if it was a physical force, all forces consist 
of, of particles that propagate waves. So in order for gravity to be a physical force, there has to be such a thing as a graviton, and we've been looking for it for decades. It's not there. So here's the strange thing. Here we have this, whatever it is, we can't really call it a force, not technically, that is exerting this influence on the moon, and yet there's no physical component to it. There's no such thing as a particle of gravity or a wave of gravity. It is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. And, you know, gravity, John, by definition, is paranormal. That's exactly what I was just going to say. From what you're describing, gravity falls right in the paranormal field. Yeah. Can you... And this is why my work is different. I mean, you and I talked about it before. Uh, all kinds of people have talked about all different kinds of things. Generally, most of it's rehashing of the same old ideas. This is something very different. This begins to collect everything together. What I talked about, about the universe creating intelligence from a physical point of view, that uh, ecology, parapsychology, and modern physics, and paranormal effects, and begins to draw them together into a single picture. So let's go back to the gravity. Now, here's another thing that's paranormal about it. In recent decades, we've been able to collect enough information, enough observations to discover to science's horror that close to 90% of the gravity that can be observed in the universe has no adjacent physical man as a physical connected cause. It's just there in empty space. They look out through these vast fields of space to distant galaxies and, uh, and visible structures beyond, and they can see the curvatures of space between them, what they're called gravitational lensing. It's the same curvatures of space-time that Einstein demonstrated were around all types of uh, physical objects. All physical objects, he said, were, you know, were associated with the bending of space. So here we have all this bending of space. Uh, with no physical cause. So what does the very scientifically-minded world of physics do? They make something up. Now, you know what this is, what we're, where we're going with this, John. Yeah. It's dark matter. Right. You know, and physics and, and physical, or, or the physicists, the disciples, the gurus, the sages, the prophets of their field will go out to the general public and speak about dark matter as if it's an absolute verified fact. But in fact, it's entirely imaginary because the atheistic material worldview cannot accept a physical effect on the macro level without a physical cause. Uh, physics has literally run out of material necessary to explain all the observations we have today. So they just simply make it up. And my proposition is, is that their evidence for the existence of dark matter is equivalent to coming down the stairs on Christmas morning and seeing all the presents under the tree, and based on the appearance of the present, is absolute proof for the existence of Santa Claus. You're not going to tell me there's not a Santa Claus now, are you? Well, <laughs> Not this I'm close to Christmas, that, don't say that. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the evidence for it is just as strong. Exactly. Really, all we have is the existence of present without any known, you know, just to the, the neutral observer, without any known physical cause as to why they appear. And you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I understand. I'm just kidding with you. Being only two weeks away from Christmas. Oh, there you go. Well, now, what if we take this gravity, which if we're going to have a materialistic explanation for it, we need three components. We need a graviton, we need dark matter, and we need the Higgs boson, which these guys are pulling their hair out at, at CERN 
halfway around the world with that large Hadron Collider that they talked governments into pouring billions of dollars into it, and they can't find it. They, they were supposed to find dark matter, can't find that. Well, wasn't it supposed to end the be... entire world that once that collider turned on, it was going to cause a wormhole and kill us all? Well, they were talking about, some people were talking about that too. But the point I'm trying to make is that here we have a paranormal effect in the macro world. Now, we know that gravity has a real effect. I mean, if you drop, if you jump out of an airplane, you know, and you hit <laughs> the ground... You're going to smash. Yep. Uh, remember when you were saying that, uh, talked about experience uh, being pushed by unseen hands? Right. right. There's a connection there. So let's take the bending of space and bring it inside of a haunted house. Now, uh, what are we going to see? Well, the first thing that we're going to see with the bending of space is that space is actually compressed and twisted by this bending. It's like taking a thick tub of grease, taking a marble and pushing it right down into the middle of it, and it'll create a curvature that's crushed and compressed around the marble. Now, when that occurs, what we're going to observe is an electromagnetic field. That's going to happen as the result of the actual excitation of the material around this compressed space. So, funny thing, people in paranormal investigations, when manifestations are beginning to occur, as if like a, a bubble of, of space was beginning to open, mm -hmm. they suddenly see a spike in electromagnetic fields. Now, what else? can it cause? Well, when you're compressing air molecules with the bending of space, you're going to excite them. And one of the things that happens with excited atoms and molecules is their electrons jump up into their higher orbit. They get shoved up into their higher orbit. And when that excitation is released and relaxed, the electrons fall back down into their lower orbit. But when they fall back down, when they drop back down, there's two things that can happen. The first thing that can happen is that they release thermal energy. We see that same effect if we took a piece of soft metal or plastic and started wiggling it back and forth to fatigue it in order to break it. Yeah, right. It gets hot. Yeah, you got it. That's the exact same effect. So what do we see sometimes when we bring these thermal imagers in? We see thermal images. Mm-hmm. Funny, in the same place sometimes where we're feeling cold spots. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Because logically, when you look at it in isolation, that's a conflict. There's something wrong there. It's what makes it confusing. But think about it for a minute, John. I mean, you've been in the field. Mm -hmm. You're a participant in the field. I'm just an outside observer. But everything that I've seen, anytime I've seen the evidence of any kind of an apparition-type image from a thermal camera, one of the things I notice about it is that the thermal signature is more or less uniform across the entire surface of the image. It doesn't have the same look as when you focus a thermal camera onto a living being. Yeah, you can actually see the outline of the person. Exactly. And, you know, when you look at a living creature, you can see the areas of their flesh that's white hot, and then you can see the layers where it gets cooler, and the nose and the tips of the ears are dark, and the clothes are even darker. Mm -hmm. That's not what a paranormal image of a, of a thermal apparition looks like. No. So that's the evidence right there, John, that the effect that we're looking at is occurring at the surface okay. because there's no internal engine like there is in a living being to generate heat. The heat is being generated at the interface between whatever surface 
this apparition is manifesting and its interaction with the surrounding environment. All right. How about, like say, when I got shoved, I actually was shoved down a stairway, but at the same time, there was a temperature drop of almost 50 degrees, an instantaneous mm-hmm. temperature. When you could see your breath, this was in Kentucky. It was at, actually at Waverly Hills. You could see your breath, and it was really hot and humid that night, and then left the stairway, and the temperatures were back to normal. The same uh-huh. time I felt the physical effect, the temperature had dropped. I mean, that, that that's what really got me on that one. It was two things at the same time. Yes. Well, here's the beauty of my model, and this is why radio show hosts everywhere have been talking to me. I've been saying, you know, man, you've stumbled onto something. You've got something that no one else has talked about before. I wanted to talk about one more thing about this surface of this expanding bubble of space-time. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about what you're asking about. Another effect that would happen when those excited electrons drop back to their lower orbit is that they, in certain conditions and with certain materials, they will emit photons. This is one of the mysteries of physics, really, that an electron can actually emit a photon without in itself being affected in any way or without having the blueprint for the photon within itself or the raw physical material to take from itself and construct a photon with it. But we just know that it occurred. Well, we have that effect around us today in our modern world everywhere where they take an electromagnetic field and they excite the atoms of a particular piece of material. And when those electrons fall back down from that excited orbit, they emit photons. It's called an LED. Oh, okay. That's exactly how a light-emitting diode works. So now we can start seeing something where, well, you know, this kind of guy's kind of describing what we would see sometimes that are called orbs, you know, where the surface emit light. Mm-hmm. And yet it's circular. So now let's go to the other aspect of what, what you were asking me about. Because we have two surfaces in one of these expanding bubbles. If we go back to think about the tub of grease that I was talking about, let's take the marble and pull it out of the grease. Now, the grease is real firm, so it's the, the, the hollow that was caused by the marble is going to still be there. Right. So we're seeing all the effects on the outside of the uh, expanding bubble of space and how it crushes and twists and excites and contorts the grease in its immediate area. But now that we've taken the marble out, remember, according to our definition of the paranormal, there's no directly connected physical cause. Right. What we have inside of the bubble is a vacuum. Now, in normal instances, when a vacuum is being formed, if it forms very slowly, the surrounding thermal energy and the surrounding material like air molecules will seep into that space of a vacuum and will fill it up and it will cause it to reach what they call an equilibrium with its surrounding. It's kind of like water seeking its own level. But what if you had a bubble that expanded so fast that it wasn't able to suck in or, or to gradually draw in itself the surrounding thermal energy and the surrounding air molecules, the surrounding substance. What you would have, as I say, is a physical and thermal vacuum if it expands fast enough. So there would be two effects. Number one, it would draw very rapidly the heat energy from the surrounding area into its thermal vacuum, and it will be exactly like you opening up a door or in your house on a cold winter's day, mm-hmm. you'll feel a cold spot. And the other thing that you would feel is this, is that it's drawing the material in, too, from the air. So when that gets sucked in 
to that vacuum fast enough, you'll feel what many paranormal investigators report as a mystery breeze. Right. I've actually felt those before. Yeah. So here we have a model that isn't only consistent with physics and with physical observation, but when we take this model into a haunted house, the single model gives us an explanation for all of these type of phenomena. And it would actually be this way. It would physically, an expanding bubble of space-time would cause this type of phenomena. So, for example, you were pushed. You can feel or, or imagine how a bubble of space-time that was affecting its surrounding would cause that kind of force against you. Right. I know I was pushed and I could feel it, but I don't know what did it. I mean... I certainly can't say it was a ghost or a spirit. I just know something pushed against me. All right, now here's something that'll blow your mind and blow the audience's mind. I'm going to give you a little model. Let's take a bowl of water, fill it completely to the top with water, and let's say that water is some sort of a pre-material substance outside of space-time. Information, something that is kind of a substance but still not yet, like a pre-material form, which is another aspect in my book that I cover. And let's stretch a rubber membrane over it so that we can't see the water. And that, that rubber membrane is permeable. In other words, it's filled with little holes that water could seep through very easily. So we look at the flat rubber from above, and we see nothing but the flat rubber. We see the flat fabric of space. And then let's take our finger and push it down into that to create a depression, a bubble in space-time. And suddenly that bubble fills up with material. So it actually enters into our physical universe, into that well that was formed, and materializes. And that's what we see as apparition. It's a very, very primitive model, and it's not exact, but it gives the direct or the correct concept. It's like Einstein's thought experiments with transparent boxcars traveling by a train station at just below the speed of light. It's physically impossible, but the model conveys the correct mental image. Now, let's say, for example, in your instance, where you got pushed. Now, if you can imagine taking your finger and sliding it across that rubber while it was pushed down into the, into the rubber, almost like somebody works a, a computer tablet mm. where they point to the tile and they push it to the side, you know, but the finger is on the other side of the universe. The finger is outside of the physical space-time, yet it's pushing in to that depression. It's causing a depression in space-time, and if they push with their immaterial hand, you get shoved because the space that they're bending is real, and the impact of that bent space against your body is real. Now, if you take, and I'm going to jump a lot of steps, but if you take that same depression and allow information from outside of space-time to fill it, to enter into it, it'll begin to materialize, and you have yourself an apparition. And if it continued on, if it was able to continue all the way to its fullest extent, you would have a literal physical manifestation. You would have a physical materialization where if it was somebody dead, they would be bilocated. They would exist both in our time and in their time frame 100 years ago. And when you start understanding that, it unlocks the entire puzzle, John. It's the first model that removes the veil from our eyes. And actually, we can see the actual core, or what I call cracking the cosmic code of creation. It is why they can't find a graviton, why they can't find a Higgs boson, why there is no such thing as dark matter, because it's not math that creates the curves in space. It's the curves in space which act as crucibles in which matter 
coalesces and materializes. Right. It's a completely different view on all the paranormal, too. Quite unique. So, as we were talking about earlier, when you said you've kind of pretty much heard it all, nobody's heard about this one yet. I haven't had anyone talk about this yet. It is interesting. I mean, a lot of what you say there makes perfect sense to me, because I kind of think outside the box, too. I'm not your typical paranormal researcher. Uh, I don't think every bump you hear is a ghost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, imagine if those bends in space assemblage of information, you know, pushes down into the physical reality. Because it can't be a conscious thing as such, John. I mean, it can't be that people, you know, when people die, their spirits suddenly, you know, learn the trick on how to convert energy into matter, you know, or they learn how to convert their voices into ones and zeros so that it could be recorded on a digital recorder. Well, one of my big theories on that is you get graveyards that get desecrated. You know, people go in and destroy them, break tombstones and do this and that. If it was an actual physical spirit there attached, you know, a ghost... And they can make contact with you. You know, why are these people not, like, smacked in the head or affected or hurt whatsoever? That's always been one of my things. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So here we have a model that gives us not only a foundation for the paranormal, but it also explains the enigmas of physics. It explains the enigma of gravity. At least it gives us a conceptual model of why, no matter how we try, we can't get gravity to fit in with any strictly material materialistic model of the universe. It also sheds light, and I get into this in greater detail in my book, it also sheds light on time travel. We talked a little bit about that. Teleportation, bilocation. We did the penny experiment. I say that's the same way Jesus fed 5,000 people with a you know, handload of fishes and loaves. It, it cracks the code of creation. It gives us a conceptual model by which we can actually step up to what they're calling new physics. And for me, when we're deriving this model from paranormal observation, now if we take a moment and just go over to across a disciplinary line and go look at UFOs, and if we imagine, if we speculate that they are intelligently contrived and controlled spacecraft, then I allege that whoever built them understands the mechanics of reality behind the paranormal and has figured out how to build technology based on those principles. You are pushed forward with a great force, but with no physical propulsion. Well, UFOs fly everywhere at incredible speed with no visible form of propulsion. And make turns that we couldn't even think of. Right angle turns at high rates of speed. Yeah. Now that looks crazy to us, except when we remember with Einstein, Within an isolated bubble of space-time, it's in its own relative reality, which is the same reason why we're not splattered against our seats in our cars when we drive 100 miles an hour. They appear, they disappear, they sometimes appear transparent. You know, they look like they've mastered anti-gravity, which is exactly what a, a apparition does because there's so little materialization in the physical world and the depression of space-time is so slight that they can literally float through the air which gives you an idea now it ties together with these ancient astronauts. 
And I allege that if they were here, they could have not come here without mastering the technology that my book described. They would have the ability, you know, to move huge blocks as if they were pieces of styrofoam. Right, which they obviously did, and we're still working out how they did that. I'm actually, that's mm-hmm. kind of one of my things, the ancient aliens and stuff. And I know uh, one of the things I saw, there was a master mason that said with technology that they have today and the biggest cranes in the world, they couldn't move some of those blocks. Well, this model that's in my book gives insight. It gives us a conceptual way of beginning to think about these things so we can actually wrap our hands around them in a solid way and stick our feet solidly on that ground and stay there and and negotiate and reason from there. We've never had this before. That's interesting. Well, we're actually running out of time here, Thomas. Uh, do you want to, do you have a website or any information you'd like to get out there? Plus, we'll publish it on our site, too. Yes. Uh, all the information on my book, the description of what it is, a sample chapter, table of content, uh, blogs with you know with current events, schedule of where I'm going to be appearing next on the radio, and related articles, and of course where to purchase the book can all be found at www.cosmicveil. That's V-E-I-L. Cosmicveil.com. Well, that's good, and we'll actually put links on up on our site too. And I uh, really appreciate your time, and uh, I actually like your view on everything—a little bit different than everybody else. Well, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, thank you very much, Thomas. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. Got lost in the kerosene sun. I make it back before the daylight comes. Time is short and time is swift. Gotta focus. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info.com. All right, you're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. Right now we have Richard Dolan on the line. What's up, Rich? Hey, very well, Sam. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to do a show with you. Let's bring people up to speed. First of all, you finally got your book whittled down to the size that they needed it, correct? Or, or in need of, I should say. Oh, well, you're referring to AD after disclosure. Yes, and, I should uh, say Bryce in your, your book. That's right, Bryce Abel and I, the soon-to-be-released second edition of that book. That's right. And um, the story behind it is simply that the first edition of the book, which is still available, uh, is published by Keyhole Publishing. In case anyone doesn't know, that's that's myself. Uh, I am the owner of Keyhole Publishing, and for the last year we've had that book available on that basis. Uh, Bryce and I just sought out a, a, I guess we could say a larger publisher, uh, Career Press, Inc., which is reissuing uh, the book, and that'll be available in springtime, mid-spring, or May, I'm thinking. Uh, for that edition, though, they, uh, we really decided to, to tighten up the book a little bit, uh, get the word count down a little bit. That doesn't mean hack out anything important. In fact, we've added a lot of inter- interesting information. Uh, and I should, I would mention that I, 
I did the bulk of the uh, revisions um, myself. Rice did some. Uh, Career Press did none of the revisions. So I'm, I am personally very happy with this second edition of AD after disclosure. Uh, I think someone who has read the first and then reads the second edition, they'll think, what did they actually cut out? It reads really nicely, it reads really fast, and they'll be hard-pressed to see um, you know, most of the actual changes. So that was a project that took actually about uh, nearly two full months of my time this last fall. Uh, that aspect of it's now done, the editing, and Career Press is, is preparing it for publication. So what was the March date you're going to have it released, is that? I think May. May? I think I believe May is what they're, they're saying. Okay. So um, there will be a, a, a brief period of time when um, AD, the first edition, will not be available as part of the agreement, which is that um, the, the book won't be available, especially once the new version is out. Um, so I would really encourage anyone who wants to have a Christmas gift and wants to do AD, the first edition, which uh, is a version that I still feel very, very um, warm toward and I still feel is a great book, get it now. <laughs> and you can find it at uh, either afterdisclosure.com, which is the site that Bryce and I created for that book, afterdisclosure.com, or you can go to keyholepublishing.com, the same link, and uh, both of those sites will um, enable you to pick up the book and I'll ship it. I sign them. It's all very nice. On the ufological front these days, disclosure yeah. being the hot item, I know right. Bryce and yourself, and so did our good friend over at uh, Paradigm Research Group, none other than Stephen Bassett, mm-hmm. has uh, put forth another right. under... A petition to the White House. Yes. Petition to the White House. I, let, let me talk about this. This yes, is a very please. exciting thing. Now, earlier in the fall, Steve Bassett, I've known Stephen for over 10 years, has been very active uh, as a proponent for the end of, as he calls it, the truth embargo on UFOs. I rather like that phrase. And uh, what he did is to create a petition that was uh, essentially challenging the Obama administration to uh, ex- acknowledge the reality of an extraterrestrial presence on Earth. The petition, um, he was able to get enough votes, enough uh, signatories on it, excuse me, to force an, uh, a reply from the White House. Uh, that reply was uh, from early last November, in which the White House spokesperson said, uh, there's no evidence of a UFO reality or of a cover-up. Uh, we're interested in the search for extraterrestrial life and so forth. That was all very interesting. Um, as a result of that rather inadequate reply, uh, Steve formulated a second petition, which had to do with um, the White House opening up files on a little-known aspect of White House history, which is the early Clinton administration, during which the billionaire or multi-millionaire Lawrence Rockefeller uh, asked the Clinton White House to look into UFOs. Now, when you know an ordinary guy like you or me, we ask the White House to do something, they might not listen to us. However, if your last name is Rockefeller... They might be a little more inclined to listen to you, especially when you're a major campaign contributor. So uh, this is known as the Rockefeller Initiative. And what Bassett's petition had to do with was to uh, force the Obama administration to open up records and decisions pertaining to that. 
Now, Bryce and I, Bryce Abel and I, um, thought, well, that's, that's not a bad idea for a petition, but we, we have a different idea for a petition, uh, something a little more general, something that might be a little less ex uh, specific. Uh, because my feeling was, and Bryce's feeling was, that it, you know, the ordinary person, it seems a little arcane. So what we did was to create a petition, uh, really spur of the moment, at the very end of November, that would challenge the Obama administration to formulate a uh, study that would transparently review UFO reports. We actually didn't say UFO, we called it UAP, Unknown Aerial Phenomenon, a little less much, a uh, little less of a stigma associated with that phrase. And we put that out, uh, really simultaneously with Steve Bass's petition, and those are both out. Now, these petitions have one month to collect the uh, signatories that would force a reply. And, and here's the, the thing, that the Obama administration has raised the, uh, the bar. So in the past, you only needed 5,000 signatories to get a reply. Now you have to get twenty-five thousand. Whoa! Whoa! That's a little really more than raising the bar, my friend. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. They raised that in the middle of Bassett's first petition, so it, it didn't affect that petition, and he got more than five thousand, and that's why they replied. He didn't get twenty-five, and had they had twenty-five as the bar initially, he would not have gotten a reply out of it. So it's really not difficult to to think that they raised the number explicitly because of the UFO uh, topic. And here's something else that's interesting about this. Just a couple of days ago, uh, John Greenwald over at theblackvault.com, which is really an excellent website that um, contains a wealth of declassified government documents on a whole range of topics, including UFOs. Uh, UFOs is almost at the core of the black ball, but a lot of other things. Um, well, guess what? John Greenwald just obtained a variety of documents from the Obama White House that are uh, from 2009, and they pertain to UFOs. They pertain uh, explicitly to the efforts that Steve Bassett was then engaged in to obtain disclosure and when the truth embargo and so forth. And what you find is a series of emails by Obama staffers on how do we deal with this UFO? Who's on point here? Who, who manages this issue? And when you go through the emails, it becomes very clear that their discussion on UFOs evolved into a decision to refer all UFO discussions to the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence study and basically to, to make UFOs as fringe as possible in how they formulate their reply. And really, it's very, very clear that you see the, the current Obama administration reply in, uh, in that last petition, and you can very explicitly trace that to this, uh, these policy emails that were going back and forth back in 2009. So that's available. It's on theblackvault.com, and um, if you go to that site, you can you can easily navigate your way through. These documents are brand new. So, um, very interesting. In other words, sure. they, their, their goal is simply to run far and fast from UFOs every single time, and that's certainly not surprising. Well, I, it says something else. Who are the players? Who are the, uh, the, uh, the folks in the mix 
on assuring this remains, uh, you know, out of the, the forefront of, of anything we could learn or know. And you see SETI front and center. Yes, absolutely. SETI is um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, in older, uh, earlier days, they worked on U.S. government funding. They, they no longer do. They now are privately funded. But uh, certainly, they're kind of like a quasi-official uh, agency in certain ways. And um, and and right, yeah. they, you know, are really, I think, in a lot of ways, a distraction uh, for the public. Of course. Uh, yeah. You know, what are they doing? They're looking for signals from distant stars out, you know, many, many hundreds of light years away, uh, as if... <laughs> as if that's where the action is. And in fact, anyone who's taken the slightest amount of time to study valid UFO reports knows that the action isn't out there, my man. The action is down here on the ground and in our sky. True. The other thing is, we really don't know absolutely positively everything they're doing. Uh, the other thing is, everything that they have can be tapped into by NSA or any other agency, university or subgroup, whatever, black ops, and use the facilities that are supposedly being um, uh, paid for by um, private money, supposedly. And, um, you know, that's what's being declared. But we don't know this to be fact. No, look, there's so, so, everyone knows everything's so corrupt now. Um, and, and funding and classifications are nested within each other. Yes. Um, and the 501, we talked about this yeah. once before, uh, yeah. how certain black ops and organizations slash agencies, units, are using 501Cs uh, as fronts for so many different acts. Exactly. Um, you know, it's a game for these guys to, to uh, do what they need to do as easily as possible and as far removed from public uh, public eye as possible, and, but it's impossible for them to operate in a completely clandestine way. They they have to operate within the real world, and they do that through 501c3s, and they do that through, uh, you know, what are called cutout agencies and cutout organizations. This has been going on for years and years. Um, I mean, it's, in a sense, it's it's public knowledge, and that anyone listening can walk into their public library, um, you know, old school method of research. And find books and books uh, written back in the 70s and 80s that explain how this process works very clearly and how it's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, now a simple web search will uh, suffice, and there's very, very reliable good sources that, that describe this process very well of, of cutouts. Um, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, the CIA had uh, possibly the largest or one of the largest fleets of air, commercial airliners in the world. Uh, through which a great deal of, of heroin trafficking was being um, done. This is through what's called the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia. Air America. Uh, right? they, exactly. They owned Air America, mm -hmm. which was very, very active in the drug trade. Um, it didn't say CIA airlines. <laughs> no one's going to be that stupid. So they, you work through agencies. You work through uh, what seem like innocuous organizations, but they're not innocuous. They... Uh, have an ulterior, ulterior reason for existing. There was a book that was well, very rare 
um, because the CIA pulled it, and the book was called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. I believe it came out. With Alfred McCoy, I believe? Yes. And that was in. Yeah. I think that's a very good 72. book. I have it somewhere. Read it a number of times and um, lent it I out. I didn't recall that the CIA pulled that book, though, or had that book pulled. I didn't. I didn't yeah, they did. They fought a number of books. Yeah. It was pulled, uh, and then it was republished somewhere else, and of course, okay. it, it got out of there. I was able to get one. Yeah, McCoy, McCoy was really is one of the most important researchers on this. Yes, he was. Uh, that, that particular book uh, really explicitly lays out, and he wrote that book back in the 1980s, I believe. Um, uh, I thought it was, for some reason, because I was in college at the time. Um, oh, no, it had to have been yeah, after 72. So it was, yeah, 70, well, I don't know. It may be the late 70s. Yeah, mid to late seventies, at least the first edition. You know, the one well, that got. Sure. I mean, it could be someone can look this up. I could know, be looking I for that. Um, I just remember there's buying a number of other. <laughs> yeah, they also pulled uh, or really fought uh, the, the classic book by Victor Marchetti, former CIA agent. Yep. Uh, and gosh, what the heck's the name of that? I, the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence is that the one? Or? Yes. Yes, that's the one I'm looking at. I got it on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And they they. Um, of course, really jumped through hoops to prevent that book from being published, and they didn't prevent it from being published. Although they did excise, they had a one of their line line item censors go through it, and he was able in the first edition to pull out certain segments of the book, which have later been reinserted. One of them was a quote by Henry Kissinger. They were talking about uh, Chile before uh, the dictator Augusto Pinochet was put in there. You know, back in the early 70s, Chile was had elected the uh, a socialist candidate, Allende, uh, Salvador Allende. And the Nixon administration was very unhappy with this. And Kissinger said, and I'm paraphrasing, I can pull the book out, he said, I don't see why we should allow a country to go Marxist simply because their, their people are stupid. Or, I mean, I'm pulling off the book here. I want to read this quote. Yeah, it's here. a good one. It's, uh, it's a classic. It's a classic quote, <laughs> and um, holy smokes, I'm going through it. Well, we'll have to find One of my it. favorite people, <laughs> Kissinger, right? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Well, anyone listening to this, they, you can do a search on it, and um, I'm, I'm not going to bother at this point. But that, that's the gist of it. Kissinger makes this very uh, blatant statement, like you know, no, we shouldn't allow it just so. because the people say so. What cracked me up is Kane was mentioning Kissinger for a post, and I'm like, get out of here. But what, the candidate, Herman Kane? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like, I just don't believe this. Well, I'm happy he's out of the... Well, Kane, Kane is gone. Yes. And now the entire Republican Party, of course, is, is uh, quaking at the prospect of Ron Paul winning Iowa. Yes. And that is a real possibility. And, and they so. are desperately so. afraid of this man. Yep. You know, there's a guy I don't agree with 100%, but I'll tell you what, he has integrity. Uh, he is spot on when it comes to knowing what's going to go wrong. And I'm thinking he has remedies to rectify. Can you imagine Ron Paul signing the recent bill that Obama signed? Stripping Americans of really some of the most fundamental civil liberties, and really instituting what I can only call as permanent martial law, because Obama just signed the law 
the bill, rather, yes. that allows the military to detain any single American citizen if they are deemed by the military to be in league with the enemy, whoever the hell the enemy is, without trial, indefinite detention. Yeah. What no, kind no, of country is that? I'll tell you right now, Ron Paul would never have signed that. No. Ron Paul, and I'm going to do my little 15-second pitch here. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says either. But on civil liberties and on the wars, and those are two of the most important issues we are facing here in this country. That man is spot on, in my view. Hands down. And, um, and he absolutely won hands down mm-hmm. the Iowa uh, last debate, oh. where he handed Michelle Bachman her head right on national TV and, uh, and really came out looking like easily the most qualified and presidential and intelligent of all of the candidates, wow. without a question. You, you, you know, what, what gets me is um, Bachman and the prior debate was so ready to uh, realize the value of coming up with a kitsch term like, McCain, like uh, Kane's concept of 999. Come up with a kitsch term that would look, term that would look good on the front, right. you know, on a newspaper. Buy into the stupidity because the vast majority of people just want a one-liner anything. Give me 15, 15 minutes of entertainment. I don't need to know the facts. I don't care what happened. Just entertain me now and give oh, yeah. me something that I could say in one sentence. Kane's 999 was effective. Very. It, it worked. And, peop- yeah. and not, that it was, not that it was smart, no. but it was effective. It had a, it had a nice ring to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're exactly right. It was a single line, and people thought, oh, it's all yeah, that makes kind of sense. Yeah, it's about marketing. marketing Seldom yeah. the sizzle, uh, yeah. and and the sizzle today. In you know, I love good food. Uh, it seems as though I get so upset going out to eat. Quality food doesn't exist out there anymore. At least in these chain restaurants, all they're doing is selling sizzle. And uh, boy, oh boy, I, I almost can't eat at most restaurants, Sam. I I cook my own food. Uh, I am. Uh, thank good. you very much. A pretty good, uh, not a half bad cook myself. And all good cooking, first important thing is you have to have good ingredients, good food. If you don't have good food, I don't care how talented in the kitchen you are, if, if you've got garbage going in, you're going to have garbage going out. You need good quality food, and that, sadly, is becoming scarce. Yes. Uh, we have, um, you know, highly processed sodium uh, in our food, sugar, and all kinds of garbage, and it's made us very unhealthy. And regarding, uh, back to the politics, <clears throat> uh, you know, the founders of the American system predicated this democratic system on the fact that you must have an educated citizenry. And many of us have heard this phrase over and over. And the sad fact is Americans are not an educated citizenry. Uh, we are a poorly educated nation. Uh, our school systems, um, it's not that the the teachers themselves are are bad. I don't think that they are. I have a, a daughter in public school. I know most of her teachers, and I, I find them impressive. The problem is that the system itself does not allow easily for for depth of understanding, and in particular about <clears throat> about the nature of the world as it is today. So the Americans, when they graduate high school, if they graduate at all, are are poorly prepared to understand the world and poorly prepared to make intelligent political decisions. Uh, and then, of course, they, they're bombarded 
uh, anytime you turn on the TV, and everyone turns on the TV, by what you can only describe as a, a dumbing down, mind numbing, idiot creating propaganda machine. Sure. Um, there's some, there's good television. You got to hunt. And in terms of good information on television, uh, that's a little harder to come by. Certainly, if you want to look for news on TV, you're not going to find it. Well, uh, the only way to find it is you have to hunt on the web. Yeah, well, Sad the thing true. is, I think there is such a... People don't quite understand the difference between news and commentary. Unfortunately, because there's such a bias, everything inadvertently becomes commentary. It's right. selectively chosen to be put up there. Um, that isn't news. And, and what qualifies as news is um, celebrity news. I mean, even CNN. I mean, think about this. Now, you, you might expect um, I mean, the, the job of delivering news in 22 minutes, which is what most of these half-hour news shows do, that's not easy to do. So I can have some sympathy for these organizations. Um, but now there's CNN, which is supposed to deliver you 24-7 news, and they also are focusing on celebrity news and just absolute pat garbage. There is no excuse in a, in a truly responsive democratic society for CNN to be delivering the garbage that it delivers every single day, and yet they do. They have 24 hours a day to give us the news, and they still don't give us the news. The days of Ted Turner are long gone. CNN is as shallow as all of the others. So. I'll leave you to that, because uh, oh. I was very much a uh, CNN fan initially, of course, under the... Uh, well, Ted Turner had a real vision for that organization. Uh, he did. And, uh, it was beautiful. And he, he had it. This is why CNN was able to become something special, and it was because Ted Turner really made it that way. Um, so what we have now is a situation in which the typical American, the average American, sadly is poorly educated, sadly is poorly fed, even though we're overfed, we're poorly fed, um, and is overworked when, when they're lucky enough to have a job. So when is an American supposed to get a political education? And unfortunately, uh, most Americans do not have a, a good... You know, an American is more likely to be able to pick apart the uh, NFL schedule and the nuances of, the, you know, of their favorite team's strengths and weaknesses than they are about global politics, even though understanding global politics, honestly, Sam, is not a hell of a lot more complicated and following the NFL. It just isn't. No. You have to you have to take a little bit of time to figure it out. What are the primary uh factors that go into global politics? Who owns what? Uh you know, who's doing what? You can you can get all of this. It takes a little bit of time, just like following sports. But once you get it, you get it. And unfortunately, in this country we have truly forgotten that freedom ain't free. It takes work, and if you do not work at it, you're going to lose it, bud. And um, there are too many powerful interests, all too happy to take your freedom away from you. And unfortunately, there are too many people all too happy to give it up uh, in exchange for um, late-night entertainment. Of course. And as long as they have their late-night entertainment and uh, they feel they have somebody watching over them and telling them what to do, it's fine. But, you know, that isn't freedom. 
by any sense. There was a, a book in the 1950s by a uh, uh, former Freudian psychologist named Eric Fromm. Mm-hmm. It's called Fear of Freedom. Yep. Fear of Freedom. It's a classic in its day. I, I haven't read it lately. I remembered reading it years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he discussed this, the fact that you know we like to tell ourselves that we want freedom. But really when it comes down to making decisions that affect our lives, uh, people are much more likely to want someone else to make those decisions for them. Sure, because they have the blame game going. They want somebody to make that decision for them because right. somehow, some way, you know it's not going to be perfect. And you can always say, they told me to do that. And um, being in a position, you know, as, as far as what I do for a living, that is so commonplace. It aggravates me. And there are people just looking to blame people for everything. Um, Self-autonomy is the most difficult thing in the world. And, you know, I would remind listeners that the concept of autonomy is not simply uh, embedded in the fundamentals of the American system, but it really is embedded in the fundamentals of Christianity itself. People forget this. Uh, We have this idea um, of Christianity as something where you go to the priest and the priest absolves you of this, that, and the other. But the core, if you really read the Bible, and if you read what Jesus is saying, and by the way, I'm not a preacher, okay? You know this. But yes. what, what he really was talking about, in my, my take on this, is the responsibility of each person, man, woman, child, well, man, woman, uh, free person, slave, for the, for the salvation of their own soul. And really, I would ask you, how is that any different from what we say today in which each person is responsible for the salvation of their mind and for, uh, for fighting out their own space as a free, independent thinker? None of this is easy. Everyone wants things handed to them, but in uh, the real world, if we're going to be grown-ups here, we need to take responsibility for ourselves. Uh, and really, I think that is the core of Christianity, and I think that is the core of the founding of the American Republic. I think it's the core of most <clears throat> orthodoxy as far as when it comes to religious spiritual beliefs. And all of them. You know, it's, well, for the most part. And that is the premise of, of what Ron Paul builds, builds most of his... Uh, um, his platform on this, this responsibility and freedom. Yeah, and people just misinterpret that. Uh, well, I, we we got off on this whole Ron Paul thing. I just and, and I know there's many things you want to talk about, but I would just wrap it up and say that um, I, you know, I'm not a member of either the Republican or Democratic Party. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to Ron Paul. I don't I don't agree with every single thing I've heard him say, and I think some of what he says is not realistic, sure. and five government agencies, uh, cabinet positions, it's not going to happen. No. Of course, so what? Um, you know, even if he tries, it won't happen, but what he will do, uh, I think, is, is draw attention to this pernicious slide that we've had as a country into, really, what I can only call an authoritarian kind of system, and one in which your civil liberties and mine are at risk. And those civil liberties of everyone listening, we do 
even in 2011 and 2012, hey, guess what? We have a right to privacy. We have a right to our electronic privacy. Um, we've, you know, it's it's not a slam dunk that we're going to have it, or that no. we do have it. No. So he supports that, and he um, and he certainly supports ending these ruinous, utterly ruinous wars that uh, we learned quickly on had no justification. The war in Iraq had no justification. Weapons of mass destruction, no, nah, not a chance. What the war in Iraq has been all about is just simply, uh, literally stealing the oil that was in the ground, and that has been done, by the way. That oil has been privatized and sold off and is now under multinational control. And that was, billions of dollars. again, Richard, a lot of people don't realize that the what had happened there, privatization, uh, you know, as far as making it available, I should say, making it available, uh, nationalizing it, keeping it there, keeping ownership in Iraq, to Iraq, right. And controlling it more was something they did not want to take have take place. They had to intervene. Uh, same Absolutely, thing the Iraqi people yeah. that oil paid for that whole country's infrastructure. Sure did. All right, uh, hospitals, schools, roads, the whole bit. And they were the a magnificent country. Yeah. They were uh, now they're blown into the Stone Age. Yeah, look, there were there were always problems with Saddam. Let's let's not. Uh, oh, minimize no, the guy was a kook, but he was our kook. We made him. I mean, it, it was a he was an instrument of the West. He was made. I did a quick CIA. analysis on the uh, origins of the the first Gulf War in my second volume, UFOs and the National Security State. And you know, keeping in mind that what I wrote fundamentally is a UFO book, but there's geopolitics involved. And I took three, four pages out simply to to provide a, a different fact about the lead-up to that war. And really what happened, the quick summary of that Gulf War, this is the 1990-91 war, was that Iran and Iraq, of course, had fought a war for eight years, uh, from 1980 to 1988. It was a horrifically destructive war. Uh, think of it as World War One times two with children thrown in, poison gas, the whole bit, and you have an idea. It was a, a brutal war. And at the end of it, in 1988, both of those nations were essentially uh, prostrate on the ground, broke in really bad shape. Now, during that war, this is the Reagan years, um, America and Iran were enemies, supposedly. America and Iraq were somewhat allies during this war, although America was dealing with, with double dealing because America was also funding Iran as well as funding Iraq. Um, during that war, Donald Rumsfeld uh, met with Saddam Hussein, and um, and Saddam Hussein received chemical weapons from the United States during that. Anyway, at the end of the war, Iraq is broke, and he needed money, and um, so he goes to Kuwait, which had funded a lot of Iraq's war effort. Iraq owed Kuwait something like forty billion dollars, and he says to Kuwait, "Can you?" Can we stretch out these loan repayments uh, so that I can actually pay you? Because I don't have any money right now. Kuwait says no, not at all. I said, um, and then Kuwait, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So then he goes to OPEC and says, can we raise the price of oil because I'm short on cash? OPEC says no. And Kuwait unilaterally increased its oil production, driving the price even further down. Uh, making Saddam really pulling the hair out of his head, thinking, I got no money. 
So then all through this time, he's got one friend, and that's George Herbert Walker Bush, the new U.S. president as of January 89. And Bush, over the objections of much of his cabinet, is offering Saddam multi-billion dollar, low to no interest loans. And people are saying, well, what, what are you doing, Mr. President? Chemical weapons, he's kind of a crazy dictator. Bush didn't want to hear it. All through 1989 and 1990, Saddam met also with the Rockefeller Group. That is Henry Kissinger, Kissinger Associates, and David Rockefeller himself. Here's the thing. All those groups wanted Saddam to privatize his oil. They were going to give him his money. It's like working with the mafia. They were going to give him his money if he were to do structural reforms, primarily privatize the oil, and that he was not willing to do. And there is reason to believe they wanted him to privatize the water, that is Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which were incredibly valuable, and he didn't do that. But because he wouldn't play ball, that's what really did him in. Um, then, of course, he, he built troops at the Kuwait border. Kuwait had once been part of Iraq. People forget this. Kuwait had been slant drilling, that is, putting its little sippy straw in the ground and, and sipping out Iraqi oil across the border. Um, so he's massing troops at the border, and Bush all his time says nothing. And you get the famous meeting between Saddam and uh, U.S. Ambassador April Glasby, in which she infamously gives but on the green light to invade yep. and essentially says the Iran Iraq uh, the, excuse me the Iraq Kuwait dispute is an Arab Arab dispute we have no interest in that and then she goes on vacation as if to underscore her lack of interest so Saddam's thinking great I got one buddy it's George Bush I'm going in and then of course he finds out that he's in Kuwait with his pants down and Bush is uh, giving him no way to get out without a war so Saddam was suckered Saddam was suckered. Yeah. I mean, all the U.S. had to do, if they really did not want a war, if they really did not want an invasion, all Bush had to do, the simplest thing, your diplomatic channels say that we will respect the integrity of Kuwait. Simple. Simple. Saddam would have gotten the hand. He would have gone into Kuwait. He wasn't that stupid. But uh, the U.S. gave him a completely different... And, you know, I, I love how this is now 20 years old, and, you know, people might be listening saying, Rich, just let it go, man. Yeah. But this is a, a, an important turning point of our history. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, the spin on that, I remember this so well. Uh, Saddam was painted into being the next Hitler, ready to invade Saudi Arabia. That was never going to happen. And, and then Intel knew that it was never going to happen. But they didn't care. They just, the whole thing was this phony baloney. And then, of course, there were black ops, phony uh, reports of him. Uh, uh, I think, why did it have to do with the, the, the baby factory? Was the baby? Oh, yes. What they was, had, uh, that of, was, was it the niece of a um, ambassador? Was it the niece yeah, of an ambassador? Yeah, it was an intel op, and they, yeah. were, and they went before Congress, in fact, and told Congress that he had weaponized a baby milk factory. Wasn't that it? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. That was used for chemical weapons. Yeah. It was complete BS. And we know, and, and you could wiki that one up, look it up. Yeah, it's I remember that. Yeah, but it was very important at the time yeah. in whipping up. So here's, here's what it comes down to, all right? That's just one example, and it, and, and it hasn't stopped. This has just accelerated. No, what, now we what have, we have That's right. What we have in this country is an ill-educated public. Sorry, guys, but that's just how it is. Um, even if you try to be educated, it's tough, okay? And most people don't have the desire, they don't have the time, they don't have the inclination to do it. 
facing against a national security state that controls 80-90% or more of the propaganda being directed at the public. How are they going to fight that? People who want to be unpatriotic, they want to support their troops, they want to support their country. So what happens? They, they get suckered. Just, just, like, just like Saddam was suckered into invading Kuwait, they get suckered into believing the lies foisted on them. And for you know, all back the follies, in, we end up paying, the, the average American ends up paying the bill. That's right. In 1939, Adolf Hitler wanted to invade Poland. Now, he had been planning to do this for a while, but, you know, you got to have a pretext. That is, you have to have an excuse. What did he do? Well, the first thing he did was secretly form a pact with the other dictator, Joseph Stalin, and they secretly agreed to divide up Poland, and they weren't going to tell the rest of the world about this. And then what he did, he had the SS do a black op. They took some Germans who were rotting away in the political prisons, and they dressed them up in Polish military uniforms. This is a true story. I'm not making this up. They shot all but one of them and posed them at the Polish border. Then they took the last remaining guy and brought him to a radio station at the German-Polish border. They killed him too. And then they took the microphone and pretended that these Poles had taken over this German radio station in the name of Poland. Okay? Poles in Germany unite against the fascist menace. So the last guy, as I said, was shot. He was placed at the microphone. And Hitler and Goebbels used this to tell the German people we have been attacked in unprovoked fashion by Poland. We must defend ourselves. And the tanks, in fact, the tanks had already been rolling by then anyway. And these German citizens, they don't know any better. They're patriotic, God-fearing citizens, most of them, right? Yes. What did they do? They did a Kyle, they supported their Fuhrer, and end of story. Yep. They were completely, completely fooled, completely taken in. Just as, this, this is a story that never ends. It happened then, it happens today. Well, on that note, what's going to be the trigger for Iran? It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm still hoping that, that uh, ethics and sanity at some level are going to prevail and we do not nuke Iran or attack Iran. But look, it, it, there's been a, an undeclared war, a low-level war against Iran going on for years. Yeah. I remember when Iran's Internet cable were cut. And it was probably cut by Israel. Uh, that's the prevailing belief. Um, there's been uh, malicious worms sent into the Iranian Internet. This is now U.S.-derived. We know this. So the U.S. and Israel have been going after Iran. Because Iran's got, or they say, is developing a nuclear weapon, which no evidence points to. When, in fact, Israel, according to Ron Paul, just the other night at the debate, pointed out, the fact that everyone has known all along and no one has discussed, which is that Israel's had nuclear weapons for years. And he mentioned uh, 300 nukes. I don't know how he got that number, by the way, but that was the number he put out there. No one talks about that. No. Iran is not going to be the threat that anyone is talking about. This is all hype. This is all hysteria. Uh, and I am hoping 
All I can do is hope, because I don't have an inside uh, ear at the Obama White House, sorry to say. <laughs> uh, but I can hope that sanity prevails and that there is not going to be a preemptive strike against Iran, because really what it's looking more and more like is Iraq. Uh, all the hype, all the all this nonsense to build up a war, which happened in Iraq, based on lies. Um, I can they really have the moxie to take out Iran? Well, it is possible. I mean, you look at a map. You know, go to Google Earth and just look at a darn map, and you look for where Iran is, and you will see just how central and how important. Iran is geophysically, geopolitically, very important. Yeah. Um, so there is a reason sure. for doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There I is mean, a reason uh, for them to do it to take it over. Sure, that's and why to, Russia to wanted to get in Afghanistan and wanted to get to eventually to Iran right. uh, for that warm water port. You know, it's very important. For that and for the oil. Yeah, for the oil and uh, who knows? There's of course. undoubtedly other reasons. Yeah. One one of the reasons for uh, attacking Saddam back in 03, was that um, Saddam had talked about going off of the dollar to the euro yes. for his method of um, yes. of international payments and currency. And this is, a, this is a serious problem for the U.S. The U.S. has a dollar that has become so devalued, so close to worthless, uh, we are truly becoming the emperor with no clothes, and the whole world is starting to get this. Um, if if the world goes off of the dollar as its so-called reserve currency, it's going to be a real economic problem for the United States. That is for sure. And uh, and this is the thing with Libya, by the way. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, was threatening to create the uh, what's called the African Gold Dinar, and had you know Libya has a lot of oil, and Libya has a lot of gold. By the way, uh, had they succeeded. In being able to do this and moving off of the dollar as reserve currency, it would have been real problematic for the U.S. Uh, it would have allowed Libya to call its own shots in terms of uh, price on its petroleum. Uh, it would have demanded gold <laughs> instead of the dollar. Uh, and and really, it's an easy argument to make that this is actually the true reason behind the uh, NATO action against Libya recently. It had nothing to do with Gaddafi as an evil dictator. Sure. Killing his own people—they don't care about that. No, and actually, he was a. That country was moving along quite nicely. He was doing a lot for his for his, for his people. I mean, um, yeah, I I have to admit I don't I don't have as uh, detailed a knowledge of what was internal Libyan politics and Gaddafi, yeah. um, but you know it, it is it is known that he was trying to establish his gold dinar. That's sure. absolutely the case. We know that. So, so uh, it doesn't take a genius to realize that international no. financial groups would, would find that threatening. It's never what the news, the so-called news, say it, says it is. No, that's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, if there's any one takeaway that we should get out of this, uh, this chat that you and I have had, is that you know, none, of us, none of us have all the answers. I, I, don't, I couldn't um, you know, give a definitive answer to many, many events that are going on in the world today because there's always behind the scenes machinations involved. But if, if nothing else, we need to recognize that what passes for mainstream news, that is establishment news, is itself a very, very deceptive spin. 
mm-hmm. uh, and that there's always an important story behind that that's not being told, and that people should not trust TV news ever. Not ever, ever, ever. Never trust television news. If you take nothing else out of this interview, do not get your news from your from your uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, PBS. PBS is just as bad in many ways. Yeah. Not not quite as bad, but close. Right. They have they've got their under their spin. You got to go educate yourself. Get on the web and um, use your brain. Absolutely. Research. Research. Yes. But on the ufological front. What, yes, because we are into UFOs. Uh, yes. um, one thing that we can just say, ufologically speaking, is that um, good old-fashioned sightings have not abated. In fact, they are going at a very, very high rate. Uh, anyone can can ascertain this by going to the uh, two two databases that uh, I frequently like to go to. Uh, that's the MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network website. Um, MUFON.com, I, I believe, where yes. they have uh, very active uh, sightings reports up there. MUFON reports several thousand sightings a year. And then the other one is the National UFO Reporting Center, which I'm a big fan of. That's run by Peter Davenport. Um, they take, he takes primarily raw reports. There's typically not an investigation done. But I have to tell you, they're very interesting. Um, many of them are filled with a great amount of detail, and they're worth looking into. And just on that basis, Davenport publishes over 4,000 UFO cases a year. He gets, uh, by his own account, four to five times that amount, but most of them he hasn't even published. In other words, sightings are continuing hot and heavy. They are not ceasing. Uh, There is activity going on everywhere around the world, uh, including technology that is just, frankly, not supposed to exist, but it does. It does things that are not supposed to be possible. So it, it begs the question, who is behind it, and why? Why is there so much activity? I know one thing here in Illinois, uh, just from the CMS base, I have, and this is no kidding, seven pages of uh, case files. Uh, I think we're behind about 100. And uh, we're losing investigators left and right to either the economy, health, all sorts of things. It's like, you know, again, we get hit with the plague. So I encourage people, please become MUFON members and become investigators. Ufology is in desperate need of researchers and investigators. Uh, We're falling by the wayside. We're getting older. And uh, so we need more people. We need young blood in this uh, I'd like to add a, a couple of things on that as well. Uh, one, I, I want to second your your call for UFO investigators. Look, we're in an age of YouTube in which there are hundreds, literally hundreds of UFO videos available every single year on YouTube. But every week, I get people writing to me saying, Rich, what do you think of this video? What do you think of that video? And, and the fact is, I don't know any better than the average person. Um, about some of these videos, right? I mean, without an independent investigation, video evidence is not particularly valuable. And here's where it is ultra-important for trained investigators to be able to go out and interview and investigate so that we can actually vet and and, um, qualify some of these cases and to find out just how useful they are. All right. Thanks very much, Richard. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. 
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us on the phone right now is Michael Clean, and Mike has got a guest with him again this week. How you doing, Mike? Hey, thanks for having me on once again. Yeah, I do. I have a, a special guest, a pair of them actually, Bruce and Lisa Klein from Carbondale, Illinois. Now, for those of you in the Chicago listening area that may not be aware of areas of the state south of I-80. Yes, I'm guilty uh, of that. <laughs> Carbondale is way down in the southern tip of Illinois, and there's surprisingly a a lot of ghost stories come from that area, and a lot of very famous ones, uh, because that was one of the first areas of the state to be settled. So a lot of our oldest ghost stories come from southern Illinois, Uh, and Bruce and Lisa Klein have written a book recently, uh, History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois, and not only have they gone over some of the older stories, but they've also added uh, a bunch of new places as well, because they are paranormal investigators, and they've been in the local news a lot down there, uh, and they've done a lot of good investigations, so they should have a lot of uh, interesting places to tell us about. That sounds good. They basically do the same thing you do then, too, right about Illinois. Oh, yeah, yeah, and uh, the book has done real well. They've been doing a lot of book signings down there, and so hopefully we can find some people in the Chicago area that might be uh, interested in reading about places, you know, from different areas of the state, and uh, there's a lot of good stories from down there. So without further ado, let's uh, introduce Bruce and Lisa Klein. I believe they're on the road right now. Is that correct? That's correct. Police and I are on the road right now on Route 13, headed between Harrisburg and Carbondale. Oh, that's cool. And you guys just came from a book signing? Yes, we did. There's a local bookstore down there, the Book Emporium, and uh, we're there for a book signing. And it's doing very well down here. Oh, I can imagine. And just so, you know, our uh, our listeners know, how, how did you guys first get into paranormal investigation? Uh, I know that you, your interest in the paranormal probably went back long before you started investigating. So kind of give us a little story about that, about how you got into it. Well, it started back in the uh, mid to late 60s when I was in uh, junior high school, grade school area. And back then, TV show called Dark Shadows was very popular. Oh, I used to love that one myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'd rush home from school every day at 3 o'clock just to watch it. So anyway, um, I had a backyard treehouse, and I started a club that I called the Gaslight Ghoul Club. (laughs) <laughs> and we would meet on weekend nights and just tell ghost stories or something about vampires or werewolves, just try to creep each other out. And had a great time with it. Uh, that's how it started back then. And, uh, of course, later on, college, careers, marriage, family, that took precedence. But about five years ago, my wife and I decided to start up another ghost society. We called this one the Little Egypt Ghost Society. And... The way we came up with that name is the southern part of the state is actually known as Little Egypt, and that came about in the early 1800s. There's some crop failures up north, so 
people of Chicago and that area had come down to southern Illinois for grain just to feed their families and their cattle. And they went back to the Bible passages where uh, Joseph and his sons went down to Egypt to get the grain to feed their family. So that's how southern Illinois got to be known as Little Egypt. So we chose that name of our group. Hmm. That's very, very fascinating. What are some of your more interesting cases that you've had over the years? Well, probably the most interesting one was at the Rose Hotel. That's in Elizabethtown, Illinois, on the Ohio River. It's down by Cayman Rock, Illinois. And the hotel is actually owned by the state of Illinois and operated as a bed and breakfast. It'll be 200 years old next year, and it is the oldest continually operating hotel in the state. Well, we've done several overnight investigations there, and every single time, doesn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime, We've had paranormal activity. It's just incredible. In fact, we captured with one of our cameras what we believe is to be the ghost of a former servant there. Mm-hmm. And the way I got it, I was in one of the upstairs suite, and I was just taking a general picture of the room, crouched down, got ready to snap a picture, and I heard the floor creak behind me. And I turned around, there's no one there because the rest of the team's downstairs. So I went ahead and took the picture, and several others didn't think any more of it. Well, what we do when we get home is we take the digital cameras and hook them up to a TV set because there's better resolution. And on that one picture in the far corner, there's a piece of furniture, an armoire with the mirrors on it. And someone said, look in the corner. It looks like there's a head there or a face. So we zoomed in on it, and sure enough, it looked like the face that's kind of coming out of the mirror staring at me. And I thought, well, that's got to be me since I was only one up there. <laughs> well, we showed it to Sandy. She's the lady that manages the place for the state. And she says, I I know who that is. She went in her office where she kept the scrapbook and has all the old time photos from the Rose Hotel there. And she found this one photo of a named man named Tote. He was a former servant there. Turns out he was born there. He worked there all his life. He died there and is buried in the backyard. The photo matched exactly with the photo I captured. of black man and all the features were there. I mean, you could superimpose the two photos. So that was pretty convincing to us. That's actually pretty cool, a photo that you can validate, which is extremely rare in this kind of business. We went back and tried to debunk the photo. We went in and took that piece of furniture and tried moving it. We tilted the mirror. I changed positions in the room. We actually videotaped ourselves doing this, and no matter what we did, we could not reproduce the photo. So that's what makes me think we may have really captured something. And talk about creepy. When you go to this bed and breakfast, there's a small family cemetery right there that you you look out your window, and it's it's sitting there on the property. That's ambiance. You pay extra for that. Yeah. (laughs) Well... That area, I know that you've you've gone and done some investigations at, at some other places down there. Can you tell us about those? Uh, probably the most recent one was at the Southern Illinois University campus. We were at Shryock Auditorium. It was built in the 1930s, and uh, Henry Shryock, he was professor there, and his office was actually in the auditorium, the theater itself, and he died there in his office the day the place opened up. So just before... Halloween, uh, the city council had a group of Girl Scouts who wanted us to take there and give them a little ghost hunt, a little presentation for Halloween. So we were set up in the auditorium on the stage, had all of our equipment there doing question-answer type thing, and um, all of a sudden on stage left, we heard this door slam shut so hard it almost shook the stage. We were looking around because everyone was accounted for. They were on the audience. In fact, we were locked in the building. So pretty soon after that, we dismissed the Girl Scouts, and we decided to investigate it. Well, we checked various doors, and they all had these dampers on them, so they 
closed real shut. It was impossible to slam, but we found one door that would slam like that. The thing is, it was locked. It was barricaded on the outside because they just regrouted the sidewalk, and on the inside it had the red, I mean, yellow caution tape were known to get through it anyway. So we think, for whatever reason, it may have been Henry upset that we were there or curious or, I don't know, but the door slammed, and like I said, we could not account for it. You had to actually have a key to open the door. Well, that's huh. interesting. That's actually a known yeah. fact, too. A lot of times if a spirit seems to be upset with you, they'll they'll pound on a wall or slam a door or stomp their feet. You know, they tend to make some loud bang. Right. There's a ghost light on the stage there, and the performers there and staff say a lot of times the light will turn on or off by itself, and they'll hear various sounds, and they all think it's the ghost of Henry, the guy that actually died there years ago. Well, just out of curiosity... Now, up here in Rockford, there's been some controversy with uh, local churches being opposed to um, some of the paranormal tours that are going on over here. One of my good friends does uh, Rockford paranormal tours. She used to do them out of the public library, but apparently there was a, a brouhaha uh, where some local pastors got upset that you know that the the library was hosting these events. H- have you run into any kind of opposition down there uh, i well, imagine religious sentiment is stronger down there than it is up here it's very strong but in our case it's very interesting we go from one extreme to the other there's one church in rather rural area here and the pastor was talking about i believe during his sermon saying that our book came out and it was a book of lies and uh, <laughs> we're dealing with the devil and that sort of thing and obviously <laughs> How nice. never even read the book because <laughs> book's mainly history and folklore. Not a very good review. The other stream, we have a pastor of a Christian church in Vienna, Illinois. He's actually a member of our team, and he promoted our book during one of his sermons. (laughs) They rushed out and get it, so we go from one extreme to the other. (laughs) I guess. Controversy just sells more books, so that's good. Oh, yeah. Any publicity is good publicity. Well, that kind of bleeds over into the question I was going to ask about the reception of the book. Now, it it came out in uh, the summer of 2011, and it's called History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois. And what did you find was the reception when you first came out with the book? Well, the reception has been overwhelming down here. It's like the people are starting for this sort of thing because there's not any books about paranormal, ghost hunting, or stuff like that that is specifically dealing with Southern Illinois. And by Southern Illinois, I mean I-64 and South, the extreme southern part. So people are really eager because there's only been just a few other books. One came out in the 1930s, and then there's another book came out in the early 60s. And besides those two, there's nothing specific to our area. So yeah, people I snatch up this book as soon as it comes out. Yeah, it's uh, that's one of the things that I liked about it is it really updated that. And I'm, I'm honestly surprised because I, I know that uh, Troy Taylor has written a lot about central Illinois and other parts of the state, but even he hasn't done very much about the the deep south there in, in southern Illinois. So it's a good addition to the uh, the literature. We've had a great time doing it, too. Like I said, we've traveled extensively throughout southern Illinois, interviewed a lot of people, done some of our own investigations and research at historical societies and old newspapers, and there's just so much information out here that people don't know about, and they're eager to read about. It. Yeah, especially the people like my Mike was saying up here in the Chicagoland area, we don't know about anything in that way. Is you know, I'm afraid to say that I've lived in Chicago my whole life, and 
I don't know any of the stories of that area you're in, which is kind of a shame considering I've lived in Illinois my entire life. Right. Well, we got a lot of Chicago people that attend Southern Illinois University in Carmdale, so hopefully they'll pick up copies of the book, take them back home to Chicago, and generate some interest up that way. Yeah, there you oh, go. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, now, you're, you're working on a new book, is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit about that? The new book, we were going to originally expand the area into, like, Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, some from Gettysburg and all that. But we eventually found we had a lot more information on southern Illinois specifically where we could make just another complete book about this area and wait for a third volume of the surrounding areas. Oh, can, can you tell us a, a little bit about some of the newer stories you'd like to add? Yeah, as long as you don't steal them for your book, Mike. <laughs> Lisa has a couple things to add. Here's Lisa. Okay. Hi. 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 Uh, you guys were asking about some of the stories in our new, newer book. One of the stories we're going to be putting in there is about a house we did a investigation in Murfreesboro, and the couple had been having some problems, and they had a pantry. The house had been redone. I think the house was built, what, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there, and the lady that lived there actually lived there when she was a small child, and the house sewed. And long story short, she has reattained the house in her name now. And she went in, they've redone everything. And in the pantry, she said before when she lived there, she said she had an off and on little creepy things, but she never thought anything about it. And we went in, did an investigation, and immediately I went to the pantry and asked them what the deal was with the pantry. Come to find out, there was a little girl. I guess at one time, there was an older gentleman that lived there, and he was very punishable to small children. But little girl was in the pantry, and I had told him, I said, well, just take in, in the pantry and just put, like, a teddy bear or a doll or something. And they, they put some chalk in there, and they put... Uh, teddy bear in there and when I first went in there the first time the the pantry itself was just like dark and dreary it was awful and so we went back a couple weeks later and you could tell a difference in it so there's still some things it's still an ongoing investigation uh, we keep in contact with them and so far everything's been a little bit quieter for them <laughs> so that's one of our stories we're going to be putting in the book and then I'm originally from Galatia, Illinois, and I have various stories throughout Galatia. Uh, one of the stories, my grandmother is 96 years old, and I recall back in the early 70s this actually happening, but Grandma knew the lady, and she had actually killed her husband. <laughs> and uh, everybody jokes around, it's a big joke around the area, but it's actually a true story. The lady actually killed her husband, he was cheating on her, and <laughs> she killed him, and uh, actually cut him up and sent him to their house. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really funny, but we're laughing. No, it's, yeah, I know, I know. But that was the story, and it still generates around in this area. It's a big story around this area still yet, and it's out in the country, and it's a rural area. And the lady had recently died back in the 80s, so, you know, it's kind of died down a little bit, but the story's still out there. And actually, the, the true story about it is um, Grandma had told, talked to me about it, and she said the man was actually seen uh, at the train station in Marion, and they think he had he actually fled southern Illinois. He was in with Charlie Berger and the Shelton gang, and he was kind of running back and forth between the two gangs, 
And so I think instead of him actually getting killed by his wife, so it generates around here, it actually was he actually fled southern Illinois. So <laughs> uh, I, I like the other uh, version better where he was fed yeah, to the hogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? That might have could have really been happening, but it's another mystery. <laughs> so how do you find your stories? You know, you've, you've got the book of the whole um, area out there. How do you guys find them? Libraries, hearsay, things like that? Some of it's through the libraries. We go through looking up old articles, and, you know, we'll start out like... In the book that we had just written, there was this article about a train wreck in Carbondale, and we was actually looking up some information about another story, and I come across this little article that was maybe like a, what, inch by two inch little article, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I got to reading on it, and then I got in a little bit more extensive history, and we come up with a story. So uh, some of it's through old articles, some of it is through people, you know, just stories that you hear around and you talk to different people. So we kind of say as told by, <laughs> you know, right. so we can't say that it's true, but it, you know, it's told as being true. So. Of course, when it comes <laughs> to this kind of stuff, you can, we can never yeah. say anything yeah. is true, really. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so. I have a question for Bruce. Okay, here he is. Okay, I'm back. Hey, Bruce, uh, a lot of people don't know, I mean, even though you're from Southern Illinois, I know you come up to Chicago because of your work in the National Guard. Actually, Army Reserve. Or Army Reserve, sorry. And uh, you, you've been to Batchers Grove, right? Yes, that's true. And uh, so now yeah, that's you... one of the creepier areas. Yeah, tell right. me about and it. you had an interesting experience there, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, generally the rule is when you go out on ghost hunts or investigations, you never go alone. You should always have at least one other person with you. Exactly. Well, I violated the rule one night, <laughs> and I went to Batchers Grove Cemetery alone. Oh, okay. It's something I will never do again. Yeah. A death wish. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it was during the winter. There was a fresh snowfall on the ground, so I parked at the forest preserve across the street and hiked back there. And there's no tracks in the snow. I mean, I was the first one back there since the snowfall, so walked in there, got in the cemetery, and I'm looking around, and it's just really eerie. And all of a sudden, I hear that these voices kind of like chanting all around me, and there's no one else there. Couldn't figure that out, and I'd see like a uh, little lights bobbing around through the forest just outside the fence line. I couldn't figure that out, and just got this overwhelming feeling like someone was right there with me. Well, when I crawled back through the fence, I got out to where the trail was, and I noticed my footprints were the only ones coming in. There's no other footprints anywhere there, so it couldn't have been anyone walking around or chanting, or I can't explain it, but mm-hmm. the feeling there is just uh, evil to me. Impressing. I, I have no desire to ever go back. That place is creepy, but other times you go there, it's just like, you, it's a walk in the park. It's There's nothing out there at all. It depends on, yeah. you know, when you're there. I had an experience in the winter there the same way. I put in a recorder in a hollow log, and I walked away, and I had the only set of footprints out there. And then when I went back, the only footprints were still mine. And then later when I listened to it, I could hear people walking around in the snow. But yet there was no footprints. So that same kind of thing you had there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just really eerie. Um, like I said, I, I just have no desire to go back to that place, at least not alone, that's for sure. Well, that's my number one rule, too. I always tell people not to go there alone, and not necessarily for the spirits, for the other people that might be hanging around there that might cause you problem, too. Yeah, that's true. You have more fear from the living than than the dead. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the uh, the big revelations in your book has to do with the Murfreesboro Mud Monster. Some of our listeners probably uh, remember that. It was in one of my top ten lists. They, it was the top ten strangest creatures in Illinois or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> and, 
And uh, but but you have the real story behind it. Now a lot of people think that it it's a genuine uh, Bigfoot-like creature. Can you tell us? what it actually was. Yes, I can. Um, it was a total hoax. In fact, I'm personally acquainted with the man that did it. This took place in the late 60s, and um, this you know, man, he was a young man at the time, he was real big into amateur uh, movie making, special effects, that sort of thing. So he got with a couple of his buddies, and they decided they would pull a prank on people that would go to Riverside Park and, like, the Lover's Lane be parking. So they made this hairy suit, like a Bigfoot-type monster, and they took river mud, and they caked that in the fur, and they made uh, special boots that actually had the monster's footprints so it could walk through the mud and actually leave the footprints there. How cool. <laughs> then they went to the garage and concocted the special stink juice that we called OD Sasquatch. And it was just horrible smelling thing. And they also recorded a recording of this horrible monster like screaming screech thing. So anyway, one night they went out there and sure enough there's a couple parked there on the lovers lane area. So they came out of the woods with their little I mean their huge Bigfoot suit with the mud spattered on it. They sprayed that OD Sasquatch stink juice around, hit the sound effects with the screeching and all that. And the people got so scared they floored the car, blew gravel everywhere, and went straight to the police department. <laughs> Made the report of this creature out there by Riverside Park. Well, the police went there. They even took a canine unit out there, searched the whole place, and uh, didn't find anything, but the dogs got the scent of the stink juice, and there's a barn there that just refused to go in, and I think it's because the stink was so bad. Well, anyway, this man and his buddies got so scared because the police were there. They thought they were going to be arrested and get in all kinds of trouble. They got rid of the suit, just never did it again. But like any good story, it snowballs, and after that, there were sightings all over the place. <laughs> Now, there's several books out there tell about the mud monster. It's on websites, you know, but a total hoax. That's cool. That's funny. That's actually great you got the inside story, too, because these things do tend to take on a life of their own. Oh, yeah. And it took a lot for me to just get the guy to allow me to publish the story, because even today he's still a little bit afraid of getting in trouble over it. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's people out there, even after reading the, the true story, who will insist that it's, no, it was a real creature. Well, yeah, my wife was at a street fair in Carbondale and ran across this lady that claimed the creature was real. And she says, yeah, he's real because I know I caught him flying over my the trees in my front yard. I cut his leg off and sent him in the refrigerator. <laughs> in the freezer, it tastes great. Okay. <laughs> so you get all types here. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe the police ought to visit that lady's house. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Checking that refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. This may be a question that Lisa might be able to okay. handle. I put Lisa on here. Yeah. Uh, I know in, in your book, you have a little section in there about this uh, old crab orchard munitions area, and I'm I'm kind of yeah. curious about that. Can you tell me more about that place? Um, actually, Bruce had wanted me to go out there and take some pictures, and my youngest son went with me. We went out there. and uh, well, what, what is we it, was, first of all? Um, actually, Bruce could tell you a little bit better. It's an old army thing. He could tell you a little bit better about it than I can. Okay, during World War II, they had a huge munitions plant here in the Marion Carterill Crab Orchard Lake area. It was called Ordell, which means Ordnance of Illinois, and they would make the bombs that B-52 bombers would go over your 
worked with in bomb all the towns. And they had an army training camp there. It was just a huge military complex. And they had bunkers there where they would store the munitions. And there are actually some still stored there. And it's all in Western. They still make military munitions for, I think, tanks or something out there. So it's active to this day. Anyway, here's Lisa. All right. So now you know the history about the place. Bruce had asked me to go out and take some pictures. We was going to kind of start, you know, writing a little story about the area. And I went out there, like I said, with my youngest son, we went out. It was probably about 4.35 in the evening. We parked the car beside the road, and I got out and started to take pictures, and I took two different cameras with me. Neither of my cameras would work. The first one, I got my small one out, and the batteries immediately went dead. And I thought, okay. So I got my big one out, and it was like something kept blocking, you know, how you go to take a picture, and I thought I had left just the lens cap on. So I went to take the lens cap off because it kept just showing black. I could see the picture, but then when I go to take a picture, it would just, like, something was, like, the lens was on or something. It would just be black. And I took a call and it kind of looked like finally when I started was able to take the pictures it was like there was something like in the way of the lens but I finally got some pictures and uh, we got back in the car and me and my son were sitting there talking about it and he was asking me about it and I told him I said well Bruce had said it was an old army place and I was trying to explain a few things to him about the area and I looked up in the rearview mirror and I seen a dark shadow and I looked at my son and he had this funny look on his face and I was like Ryan I was like I said do you see something or hear something he goes, Mom, I just heard some rifle shots. And I was like, yeah. And I said, well, I said, I know it's guarded. I said, maybe they're back there shooting, you know. And we kind of kind of like, well, maybe we should get going while we were still talking. And he got another funny look on his face. And I was like, okay. I said, well, what's wrong? And he goes, did you see that? And I said, see what? And I knew what he was talking about. He said, it looked like a soldier crouched down behind the car. And sure enough, you know, it really did. And when we got out to look, it was gone, of course. But I mean, you could smell like the, you know how the old musket smells. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a reenactment. Yeah. The old musket smelled. The smell was there. So I thought it was kind of interesting. And we went back a couple times, and we haven't been able to capture anything like we did that night. So maybe one of those things that, you know, eventually we'll catch it again. Very interesting. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So. Well, John, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask? No, you've been doing pretty good. You're actually making a great a temporary co-host today. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's pretty much all I had. Uh, so once again, the, the book is called History, Mystery, and Hauntings of Southern Illinois. Check it out. All you want to know about uh, an area of the state that probably many Chicagoans have not explored. So you'll definitely want to look into that. And also, do you guys have a website or anything you'd like to promote or so we can put it on the air for you? We're on Facebook. If you just look up Little Egypt Ghost Society, uh, it'll take you to our Facebook site. Okay, and we'll put you in our links page too so people can look you up. Okay, Br- Bruce and Lisa Klein, thank you for being on Thresholds Radio. Okay, thank you. Okay, and thank you. Thank you. Okay, Mike and Bruce, thank you very much. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. Watch your back as life comes over you. Choose your weapon before you TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. 
All right. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Suzanne Taylor's Outside the Box will return next weekend. She had a little emergency this weekend. I'm sorry she could not make it to the show. Uh, We'll be back next Friday, 10 to 11, on The Edge on Air with a brand new show starting this Friday. Coming up on The Edge, theedgeonair.com. Brand new shows, uh, 10 to 11. So we will no longer be playing reruns. So you'll have uh, two brand new shows. It'll be exciting. Uh, I'm very excited. We hope you tune in. That's theedgeonair.com. Also, we have uh, ufo-info.com right here Sunday nights, 730 on ufo-info.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>